The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight!
And now we're at episode 79 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. I'm your host, Lee Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I've got these strange puncture marks on my neck, and I'm not sure if I'm going to die or become immortal. Depends on the movie. Depends on the decade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we are joined again uh, by our special guest co-host, Jack Graham. How are you doing, sir? Pretty good, thank you. Yes, I'm I'm feeling a bit insane and giggly, and I've recently been chased through the streets by a mob of villagers um, for possibly justifiable reasons. You weren't eating any flies, were you? Yes, I was, actually. I oh, didn't okay. yeah. yeah. That's all right. It's acceptable diet in some countries, anyway. I've uh, I've moved on to spiders, and I've I've got my eye on kittens now. So, <laughs> well, you got one with you in your room. But, uh... <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sport for choice over here. I tell you. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be talking about Nosferatu from 1922, and we're also going to be talking about the 1979 remake. First off, we do have two brief comments to get to from our frequent listener cb fall on the previous episode we did he said fantastic podcast and on the episode previous to that he said very amazing podcast so there you go so is very amazing to fantastic is that a is that a drop in quality or a or is that kind of a lateral move i don't know i'm i'm assuming because podcast that he said very amazing podcast was the one that had james murphy and jack graham on it doing the little uh, little bits for the intermission so I'm assuming he meant that was better in quality. Oh, yeah, yeah. The one that I'm not in. I get that. Mm. I, I agree. That that makes perfect sense to me, I have to say. Actually, uh, I, I think fantastic is an advance on very amazing, personally. Because to me, like, amazing is like the moment of astonishment. And then beyond that is the fantasy. Yeah, could be. Could be. When you put very or something like that in front of one of those descriptors, it's like, oh, you're, you're doubly good today. You're not quite as bad as you were yesterday. <laughs> Double plus good. Yeah, double plus good. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you, CB Fall, for the comments. By the way, um, I meant to ask, am I supposed to be recording anything? <laughs> no, that's all right. No? Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should be all right. We, 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 we had the worst fucking time with James last week, though. Man, <laughs> his internet just crapped right out. And then uh, we had the worst luck with uh, Skype there for a while as well, so... Yeah, I, I had some bad luck with Skype last time I recorded a podcast. It, I was trying to talk to Kit on Skype, and it just wouldn't work. But uh, luckily, we got into Google instead. But that's irrelevant. Anyone have anything they watched in the last little while they want to talk about? Uh, I do. All right. I watched the new Netflix documentary, The 13th, uh, which is about the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which has a clause. <laughs> it's the amendment that uh, supposedly bans slavery, but uh, it has a clause that uh, says, unless you are duly convicted of a crime and about the rise of the mass incarceration uh, kind of thing, Jim Crow. Traces a lot of that history. It's a little more impressionistic than something that's uh, really systematic, but it's a really powerful watch, and I think if you don't know a lot of that history, it's really, really vital to see. Uh, really, I mean, enjoy is the wrong word, but you know, to the degree that one can enjoy that kind of <laughs> yeah. thing, it was, I found it uh, really, really enjoyable. Right on. Jack, anything you want to mention? Well, apart from the two Nosferatu movies, I've been kind of I've been kind of steeped in late Victorian Gothic recently because I've been I've been uh, not only watching the Nosferatu movies, but in, in an attempt to brush up for this, I've been watching documentaries about um, Dracula and Bram Stoker, and also for another podcast I'm doing quite soon, I've been watching documentaries about Jack the Ripper and watching movies about Jack the Ripper. There's uh, there's there's one good Jack the Ripper documentary on YouTube. It's the Time Watch one with Christopher Frayling. If people want to watch one, they should watch. That. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's uh, there's two films 
which do a sort of dramatic take on the uh, Jack the Ripper Masonic conspiracy thing. There's one from the 70s called Murder by Decree, which has got uh, Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes investigating. It's got a fantastic cast of British character actors um, investigating the Ripper murders, and it all turns out to be the Masonic conspiracy. And it's quite good, I think. It's quite a good film. And then there's the more recent one, from hell which is directly based on the masterpiece comic graphic novel from hell by alan moore and eddie campbell is the other guy's name yeah which uh, that movie has johnny depp in it and it's not very good but i was watching those both for research and i've also been watching documentaries on youtube about early silent cinema for obvious reasons Hmm. I actually like From Hell, but I, I will agree it's not like a great movie or anything. Uh, well, it's, especially... it, I, I think it's 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 a reasonable enough, you know, sort of schlocky movie. You know, it's a reasonable enough pot boiler. Well, but it's... Com- compared to the source material, you know, the the, the graphic novel. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's not good at all. I agree there, and it's also basically a dumbed down version of Murder by Decree. Yeah. So. It does have some good bits in it. There's one bit where um, they depict one of the murders and then the camera sort of stays in place and you see time-lapse footage of loads of coppers and investigators and journalists appearing, you know, over the course of the night and into the morning, and that's quite good. There's some stuff, there's some quite good visuals in it, but on the whole, it's, it's not very good. I like how Heather Graham is the most incredibly gorgeous, beautiful... <laughs> cheap, cheap prostitute from Whitechapel that you could ever hope to find. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think they looked like that. No, just, just guessing. She could charge a lot more and be in a much better spot if she looked like that in the, those days. But uh, yeah, I, I do, th- I do like all the actresses who play the, uh, the, the sex workers in the film. Yeah, who end up the victims? I think there. Are, I mean, you've got fantastic Leslie Sharp. She's brilliant, and yeah, mm. but that's that's another high point of the movie. Yeah, nice. I look forward to uh, listening to that podcast, the Jack the Ripper one. Okay, I don't know anything about that. I'm gonna uh, just be quiet and. Uh, <laughs> All right, mm. this this is Daniel and I doing a secret handshake. Ah, uh, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't imply anything by that tone. <laughs>
All right. So uh, we can move on to our first film, and it is Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. I'm not going to try to pronounce the uh, German one because I'll just make an embarrassment of myself. Eine Symphonie der Grauens. There you go. Thank you. Directed by F.W. Murnau. Uh, who's also known for doing Faust and maybe like three other movies before he tragically died in a car accident way too early. Written by Heinrich Galen, based on the story by Bram Stoker, of course. Starring Max Schreck as Graf Orlock, Gustav van Wagenheim as Hutter, Greta Schroeder as Ellen, George H. Schnell as Harding, Ruth Lanshoff as Ruth, Gustav Botts as Professor Sivers, Alexander Ganache as Nock, John Goet as... Professor Bulwer and Max Nemitz as in Capitan. Yeah, uh, we'll throw it over to James first. When's the uh, first time you've watched this, and what's sort of your experience watching this? Is, is James here? Damn it! <laughs> I'm, I'm, re- I'm reading the Google name here. <laughs> uh, are we going to do a uh, synopsis as well? Oh yeah, Daniel should do your synopsis. That should probably happen first. So go ahead. Yes, David, do your synopsis. <laughs> I, I had three beers while I was waiting for <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry. The funny thing is my name is actually James. Jack is just what everybody calls me. So it worked. It's James the Ripper over here. Mm. Nosferatu is a nativist tale depicting the horrors of proper society allowing diseased foreigners to immigrate. The name's different from the two versions, so let's keep this generic. In the mid-19th century, a German estate agent is asked by his boss, an international banker, shall we say, wink-wink, to travel to Transylvania and negotiate the sale of a house to a reclusive but incredibly wealthy client. The estate agent must leave his lovely wife for a period of some time to make the arduous journey, and when he arrives in the town, he finds that the townspeople warn him against seeing the wealthy man, frightened they are even by his name. The agent continues on nonetheless, finds himself in the castle, and is met by an incredibly pale, bald, creepy shell of a human being who speaks strangely and carries himself in a way that seems somewhat monstrous. Later, while eating a delicious meal served by the strange man, the agent cuts his finger by accident. Drawn immediately to the side of the blood, the strange man, and let's just drop the pretense and call him a vampire, all right, becomes violent, but controls himself barely. The next morning, the estate agent wakes with a pair of marks on his neck and begins to suspect that his host is none other than the monster spoken of in a book he found at the inn. As he begins to investigate these suspicions, his wife becomes increasingly taken over by the powers of the supernatural being, engaging in somnambulism and becoming drawn into nightmarish visions. Soon after discovering the vampire sleeping in its coffin one night, the monster decides that he must be off to his new home. Leaving the agent locked to the castle, he travels to a nearby port with several coffins full of diseased dirt. These coffins are loaded onto a ship, on which he will travel to the agent's home city. Along the way, during the night, he will secret out and pick off the crew one by one. Meanwhile, the agent climbs down a rope made of bedsheets to warn his town, but is injured in the process and must first come back to health in a hospital. Once the coffins arrive on the deserted ship, rats that have been living in the diseased earth begin to infest the town. Meanwhile, the vampire begins to stalk his new prey, the lovely wife of the estate agent. The two films differ significantly on the details here, but suffice to say that the woman eventually realizes that the only way to kill the monster is to entice him to feed on her until the sun rises, at which time he will die by the radiant energy. She must sacrifice herself so that the vampire may be vanquished. Both films in this way, but differ in the fact that in the original, the vampire only causes death in his victims, while in the Herzog remake, vampirism is a contagious disease. Hence, in the remake, the estate agent himself becomes the new instantiation of the Nosferatu and rides off to find his own future as an undead specter. Yeah, and uh, we'll throw over to Jack. Talking about the original Nosferatu, can you sort of recall when you first sort of saw this and uh, what your initial thoughts were on it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I was a childhood Dracula fan um, because of the Hammer movies primarily, and then later on the Universal films um, as they got shown on British television, usually BBC Two quite late at night, and I would uh, pretend to go to bed and then get up and watch them in secret. Um, And I was uh, very, very, very into Dracula. And I was, when I was quite young, something like nine or ten or something like that, I was given a book. No, I tell you what, it would have been... 1987 because the book was called the dracula centenary book written by peter haining who incidentally wrote loads of uh, similar books about doctor who uh, non-fiction books about doctor who which i which i also owned and there's a whole chapter in that book about both the nosferatu films complete with loads of brilliant black and white photographs and i went into the book expecting to be mostly interested in the stuff about the Hammer films and then secondarily the stuff about the Universal films and then, you know, after that, the the book, which I had tried to read at that point, but it was beyond me at that age. And I got absolutely fascinated by instead, well, uh, not instead, but amongst those other things, by the chapter about Nosferatu, both versions. And I wanted to see this film for so long. And then it was several years later, I couldn't tell you exactly, but I was something like 15 or 16. Nosferatu, the original 1922 uh, silent movie, was released on home video on VHS. I think it was a label called the Aikman Archives. It was not a good edition, as I now know, because it was just in black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, And the film just doesn't make any sense without the colour tints that it had originally. But I, I saw the film, it would have been round about my 15th or 16th birthday, and it was an absolutely, uh, you know, sound pretentious, but it was a revelatory experience. It was it was something completely new. It was like watching dreams on screen. It completely changed the way I look at movies. It's a movie that uh, got me interested in silent cinema, early cinema. It led to my interest in uh, all sorts. You know, I, after that, I started obsessively hunting down films like that. You know, from Dr. Caligari to Metropolis and. Uh, yeah. Through to through to later films like the Doctor Mabuza films, you know, I got interested in Fritz Lang and Murnau and uh, and and all this stuff. And that, in, you know, I can trace when I think about it now, I can trace from that my interest in obviously expressionism from these films through to surrealism, and you know, it, it's it's an, it's been an enormous gateway drug to me in my life. This movie, you know, via Dracula. So Dracula is kind of like the vector um, whereby I discovered loads of other things and i will always owe at least a huge portion of that to this movie which as i say i saw when i was still quite young and i think that's probably about the right time to see it when you're a 16 year old dracula fan and not long after that you know i tracked down a vhs of the herzog remake from 79 if anything that blew me away even more and more relatable of course than the, the 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 silent early cinema of murnau it's more alienating it's less familiar it's more revelatory to continue to use that pretentious phrase, you know, in some ways, because it, it turns you on to stuff that you just haven't seen before. You know, I mean, at that when I when I saw the original um, Nosferatu, I hadn't even seen any old 60s Doctor Who. You know, that was still around the corner for me. So seeing something from 1922 was incredible. It was like a window into another world in a more immediate way than anything else I'd ever seen before. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you think there was a point before 1950 when the world was actually black and white, you know, and at some point you get past that. But even so, there's still something incredible if you're orientated that way. There's still something incredible to you about the past. And there's something about the feeling of being able to look through a television screen into it. Uh, there's something incredibly tactile about cinema. You know, you can feel, you can imagine what it's like to feel the textures and walk in the environments. And Nosferatu actually 
particularly so because we'll, I don't know we might get into this a lot of it's filmed on location and in real sets and stuff like that it's not like a, like a studio set you feel like you could walk into the past through the screen and walk around in it and interact with these people I remember being fascinated first time I watched it by the cats at the start you know and thinking those are cats that were living in 1922 you know I don't know there's just something about that that blew my tiny little mind you know that's a cat from the 1920s um and it, I have yeah, that it, response now Jack <laughs> yeah so do I so do I absolutely yeah but you know for the first time like so many powerful right, right. experiences the first time is the first time you know and well, um, just thinking like the vast majority of the people in this film were born in the 19th century just mm, that statement mm, mm. you know kind of has that uh sorry not to not to interrupt your thing no that's it's fine um there there is that there is always that thing whenever you watch something that's this old is is uh it is it is this direct tactile conversation with the pastor having just watching the film mm. beyond any of the artistic merits of it absolutely yeah it's from that particular moment in the past the very early 20th century where the the 19th century is still kind of lingering and the 20th century hasn't really got going yet and yet it's it's i suppose it has actually because it's after the first world war it's a film made directly after the first world war so it's a product of that shattered european culture that's still reassembling itself and gradually working out that it really 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 seriously isn't the 19th century anymore you know we're in some different time now and yet so many of the environments you know the streets that murnau shoots they look essentially unchanged from like 100 to 200 years previously as bits of europe still do actually but but less and less and less obviously so there's that i think that moment to me that the 20s just after was well, sort of like just before and then during and then just after the first world war because the first world war is kind of the great fault line down down the, the, the 20th century. It's kind of the great crack, you know, in history. And that moment is endlessly fascinating to me. And I think a lot of that can be traced back to this. And then, as I say, I tracked down the remake from the 70s. And if anything, although the effect of the original was incredibly powerful, just because of what it was, you know, it's this artifact from a different time, a different epoch. The remake, although less significant, obviously, artistically, in terms of the history of cinema, in terms of its influence, it's more relatable because obviously it's in color and you, you can hear people talking and stuff like that. It's a more comprehensible style of filmmaking. Um, it's like art house hammer, basically. That was incredibly powerful to me as well. Cause I was watching some, I was watching a story that I knew very well. Cause I've seen endless hammer films. I've seen endless universal films. I've seen this movie a hundred times, you know, and yet I'm watching something that suddenly for the first time seems to take it really. And I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing those other films cause I love them. And I think they're important and, and thoughtful and, you know, meaningful films, a lot of them anyway. But this is a movie that really thinks about its concept and about what it means. And, and, you know, it's the interiority of the characters and its relationship, this condition, this story, its relationship to history. And if anything, you know, that set me off on my interest into um, 20th century avant-garde cinema. cinema. It set me off on my interest into Herzog and all this stuff. And uh, yeah, it's another gateway drug. So I think I've gone on long enough. But these are big, big, big movies for me. Excellent. Uh, Daniel? I don't have a, nearly as wonderful a story as Jack has about uh, watching this film. Uh, actually, the the remake I just watched this week. Um, I had never seen this uh, this new version, so that was a uh, real find for me. And I'll I'll definitely um you know I really appreciate finally getting to see it. It's always been on my list to watch, but never actually uh, picked it up. I, I mostly have seen Herzog's uh, documentaries, ironically enough. Yeah. But the 22 version I caught late at night on Turner Classic Movies sometime in the late 90s, maybe. It was a shitty print. It was kind of early in my kind of had discovered film 
as a like a medium and a, something that I was critically interested in. Um, must have been sometime in my like kind of early college years, uh, so 98, 99, 2000, somewhere in there. I kind of approached it as homework. Um, it didn't really uh, strike me as something, you know, I saw it, I recognized the, the art of it, I recognized its kind of genius, but really didn't never process it in any more uh, deep level than that. Coming back to it now, and I, I literally have not seen it, and it must have been a really shitty print, I believe it was in straight black and white, um, oh, yeah. with the kind of bad audio and, and sort of, you know, like, it was it was not a good viewing experience either. Watching it this week, which I uh, actually watched, there's a version on YouTube, which is the, a rip of the Blu-ray. And mm-hmm. it's fucking gorgeous and um, really had a much stronger impression of it, um, a much more nuanced view. I mean, this is really my first time watching it since, you know, kind of embracing um, kind of political art and political readings of art. So I, I had a much more profound experience of it uh, this time. I mean, I would have kind of uh, assented intellectually to the idea that this is one of the great silent films before rewatching it this week. But today, I would probably call this entirely possibly, it's at least arguably the single greatest film of the silent era. I, I wouldn't say absolutely, but I think it's an arguable position and uh, one that I am uh, absolutely looking to defend a little bit here on this podcast today. <laughs> I, I loved this. Uh, I loved revisiting it. For me, it was almost like seeing it for the first time, even though I'd seen it before. It's a really, really rich film experience. And uh, that's my history with Nosferatu. Yeah. I was like Jack and where I saw a really shitty print very, very early on. I was definitely intrigued by it. But for the longest time, all you could find was basically shitty prints. Unless you were willing to pay tons and tons of money, <laughs> you weren't going to get anything but a shitty print. Uh, um, Quizzy has joined the podcast. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the children uh, of the night. What music they make. What music they make. Yes. But yeah, I, I did see shitty prints. Uh, like you, Daniel, the first time I saw it, it was a shitty black and white print without the color tints. People don't seem to realize that that's actually an integral part of the movie. It's not just an artistic choice. It's kind of a necessity due to how they had to film this. The blue tints were to denote nighttime and the really deep amber shots were to denote uh, the daytime. There, there is actually, I'm a bit puzzled actually, because on a rewatch I noticed there does actually seem to be one shot that is filmed at night. It's it's the scene in the street with the, I think it's a night watchman putting the lamps on in the street. That actually does seem to have been filmed in the dark. That's weird, because I, I kind of, I'm, I'm kind of hard-pressed to believe they could have pulled it off back then with the technology yeah, they had. Yeah, but it really, I mean, I, I could just imagine, it could just be imagining it, but it really does look like a night shot. But you're absolutely right. And just on a plot level, the plot doesn't make sense if, if, you, if you don't have the colour tints. If you don't mm-hmm. have the blue tint on the scenes that are supposed to be at night. Because this is the first film, this is really the first cultural artifact anywhere, as far as I can tell, that introduces the idea of the vampire being destroyed by yes. direct sunlight. Yeah. Um, and that's how he dies. It, it, spoilers. That's how he dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spoilers for a film from 1922. So if he's walking around in daylight in other scenes in the film, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, because in the original Dracula novel, Dracula isn't killed by daylight. He is significantly weakened, but he's not destroyed mm. by it. And I don't um, think there's anything in the in in the original folklore about daylight destroying. No, there's like not. No, but yeah, I, I saw a shitty print. Actually, watching it for the podcast is probably the first time I saw a really decent print. Where you know I actually bothered to revisit and watch a really decent print. I'd I'd seen a couple more since the really shitty one I saw, 
And he was like, okay, they're slightly better. Here's one with color tinting. And, but, man, watching it this time out really gave me a greater appreciation for the, just the artistry involved in, in putting this film together. I wouldn't say it's the greatest silent film of that era. Um, I would say it's probably the progenitor of great silent films, though, to a certain degree. I would still probably rate Cabinet of Dr. Kilgari uh, above this to a certain degree. I was just going to ask, did Kilgari come afterwards? I can't remember right off, right off the bat. Kilgari comes out. No, that's 1920, isn't it? So yeah, is a year or so before, I think. Okay, because, yeah, I forgot to look that up because I was thinking that Nosferatu acts a lot like the somnambulist in uh, Dr. Caligari. Like, he, he's very much kind of the same, very stiff movements, very yeah. almost in a trance a lot of the times, you know? Mm. And, and not always... Ellen is a sleepwalker as well. Yeah. There's huge amounts of stuff in the film about dreams, which Herzog, if anything, only amplifies. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, I'd be hard pressed to say which of these. There, there is a sort of a there's a, a quorum of these incredibly integral, important, influential silent movies. You got this. You got Caligari. You got Metropolis. You got early Soviet cinema is incredibly important. I mean, you you just wouldn't have cinema as it exists now without uh, without Eisenstein, without Battleship Potemkin, October Strike. These movies, and and also in America, you have I think slightly later, but absolutely integral. You have D. W. Griffiths and um, Birth of a Nation and yeah, stuff like that. I would, I would um, say, I mean, I, I would, the, the ones that I would kind of put on even keel would be something like either The General or uh, Intolerance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Passion of John um, Mark, maybe, you know, like, but but it's it's up there, you know. But I, I really would have trouble trying to say which is the greatest, personally. It's like, it's like looking at the foundations of a massive building and trying to say which brick is the most important, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wouldn't discount, like, Phantom of the Opera as well from that conversation. Mm. But, well, I think uh, that's also what's interesting here. I mean, uh, just for me, the experience of watching it, like, it, this feels very modern in its structure and pacing and, and uh, even particularly looking at the the good restored version, you know, and the... And the it's a gorgeous film, and it it doesn't feel like homework the way that like yeah. it did for me when I watched it originally with the shitty print. You know, where it's like, okay, yeah, this is kind of all right. It's important to watch. Let's sit and watch it. But you know, kind of at the end, you're checking your watch, kind of going, all right, it's it's done. Watching it now, watching it with it with a good print, you can imagine this being shot today. Well, it, this is this film has essentially been re- remade a hundred times, hasn't it? I mean, <laughs> right. all all the Dracula and, and vampire films are, are are in are in some way at least a, a remake of this. I mean, we talk about there being one remake, but the original Hammer Dracula is it, it, to an incredible incredible extent a remake of this and and a hell of a, a hell of a lot of the aesthetics of this this is actually very different to a lot of these earlier german expressionist movies in that it's it's really not as stylized i mean maybe we'll talk about this a bit later but there's loads of location shots there's loads of real sets and this is kind of yeah. one in in terms of the game of influence this is one whereas caligari you know lost um, it, it it embraces a naturalism. It doesn't shy mm. away from the expressionism. I mean, it's still kind of using shadows and and wonky angles and and those sorts of things. But it's it's very much embracing a sort of naturalism and a realism in its performance. Mm. Realism is a obviously a complicated term, but I think you kind of get what I'm trying to get at. It's it's not it's not going for the extreme stylization. And so in that sense, it it does point the way towards noir. In a, in a much more yeah. concrete way than something like uh, Caligari does. I mean, I've, I've said before that I, I'm not so sure about the categorization of this as an expressionist film. It's always everything you read, it's called a German expressionist film. Of course, it is. I mean, it is a German expressionist film. I'm not going to yeah. try to deny that. It, it, you know. it partakes of expressionism in the platonic sense as opposed to being of expressionism. 
I think. Yes, it, it contains expressionism. But I think if you just call it a German expressionist film, you, you're, kind of, you're kind of leaving so much out that you're actually being misleading. Because it's, it's very, very different to the, the sort of the, the haute expression. This is partly why the film is so incredibly powerful, I think. This gets to a really important... Because expressionism is a movement that kind of straddles two great movements in European culture. I don't want to get too heavy about this, but you have romantic expressionism and then you have modernist expressionism. And the country where this continuity stroke contradiction is most keenly felt and most keenly seen is Germany. Because you have German romantic expressionism exemplified by, for instance, the paintings of Caspar David Friedrich, which Nosferatu totally rips off. It's totally made in reference to that style of older, late 19th century romanticism, capital R, you know, the artistic cultural movement. And that's undergoing a revival in Germany at this point. Romantic Gothic Expressionism. There's, you know, they're refinding all this older stuff from before the First World War because they're trying to reassemble their culture and reconnect for it before this catastrophe engulfed the country. And yet at the same time, you have the rise of modernism and you have all these other forms. You have expressionism relating and feeding into surrealism and stuff like this. And you, you see it, it, you know, as opposed to Caspar um, David Friedrich, you see expressionism feeding into new styles of painting. You have feeding into Beckman and Gross and Dix and Ernst and all that stuff. Um, you know, the Weimar cultural renaissance. And I kind of think of Nosferatu as trying to straddle that, that great chasmic divide you know that's partly why it's so keyed into its historical moment yeah and and revisiting this um not only did i just gain a reappreciation for it just as film techniques and everything like that but the scope of it is actually pretty broad like some Mm. of the shots that that he pulls off are really amazing like the one of the city uh looks really really good um there, there, there's a sense. You mean the opening shot? Yeah, uh, there, there, there yeah. there's a sense of an actual like big wide world here, and I was of the thought for a lot of years that is where, uh, and I still think he does trump this film, but uh, Herzog's remake was you know the be all end all of like actually bringing scope to the actual tale. But revisiting it this time, I was like, no, actually, Murnau pulled off quite a few interesting shots and made this world actually feel big and real and solid. And so, like, that's kind of where it differs from what a lot of people kind of think of as, as expressionist stuff. Well, we tend, to, we tend to think of films of this era as kind of being, like, locked-off cameras and sort of small yeah. sets and people kind of emoting in very stylized ways. And here you get these kind of vistas. I mean, a lot of the location shooting, I mean, honestly, for me, one of the, one of the shots that I am you know, almost uh, gleefully clapping my hands like a small child at. It's such a simple shot. But it literally is just the um, shot of the ship on the ocean or on the yeah. on the water. And the way that it moves at this sort of um, skew angle to the camera. And so the camera just kind of watches it glide past slowly. And then mm-hmm. just you sort of see the wide expanse of water at, at the end of the shot, which... It's such a simple thing. I mean, today we don't even think about that. But in 1922, can you imagine how enveloping that would have been to audiences kind of used to the styles uh, at, the, at the time? I mean, this is this is astonishing level of film. I'm sure we'll talk a bit about it more, but uh, Shadow of the Vampire from 2000, you get a little bit of insight into the filmmaking can, can we not? Can we, can we not talk about <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but I, I think it is to that to that, to that to that degree. And I actually like the film. I don't know what you think of it, but uh, I, I think it is kind of insightful and in just giving people a kind of, you know, very basic sort of prep course on, you know, here's how they actually film these kind of films back in the day, you know. Like a, a guy, a guy physically killing his arm, cranking the the camera to to film yeah. this stuff. I really like Shadow of the Vampire. I love the way it shows you to what extent this was kind of what we might today call guerrilla filmmaking. Just the standard practice. Certainly, if you're making a film out on location in in real places like this, it's just you know get there somehow, get set up as quickly as possible. You know, get the guy in front of the camera and then just uh, you know crank it, cr- crank away and get the shot, and then you know get out of the hotel as quickly as you can because yeah. every second you're there costs money and stuff like that. It's sort of, it's almost like the basic practice of filmmaking then was what we would now think of as, as I say, guerrilla filmmaker or gonzo filmmaking. I love that. Cause this, this is, this is a film that has a kind of rushed and cobbled together feel about it. It is rough at the edges. It does feel like something that was done in, in a hurry, you know, with, with less money and, and stuff like that. Uh, as indeed it was, it was really, it, it looks amazing. I mean, Daniel's right about the shot of the ship and you have loads of amazing shots like the, like the shot, of the uh, Orlocks boxes on the river raft and stuff mm-hmm. like this, and amazing shots of uh, the, the mountains in Westphalia, uh, Murnau's home area, actually. And yet it was actually, for the time, fairly low budget. Yeah. One, one way in which, of course, you know, other films tried to cope with the low budget was to just not worry about realism at all. I mean, that's partly why Caligari is so incredibly surreal. It's just because they, they just... We, we cannot afford realistic sets or anything like that. I mean, I, I'm not saying it, it, was, it wasn't a conscious set of decisions, yeah. but they had to make a virtue of necessity. You feel, when you watch Caligari, you feel like the actors are walking around inside a, a surrealist painting, and it's because they, they basically had to do that. You, know? mm. you, you can definitely credit uh, Renau for uh, spearheading just how this film turned out. A lot of the production design was uh, by this fellow named uh, Alban Grau, who was an occultist uh, actually, a well-known occultist, and also the uh, the gentleman who wrote this, uh, Heinrich Galen, was also an occultist, and they were both instrumental in the, how this film kind of ended up looking. Probably the most pronounced uh, is the note that uh, Nock reads there with all the occult symbols on it. Yeah, I love those letters yeah. and documents with all the symbols all over them. Yeah, that's something you never really see again in vampire films. You know, when you see when you see a note from Dracula in the and the original Hammer Dracula. It's just handwriting. Yeah, it's just... That was something else. That watching it as a as a you know as a teenager, it was something new to me. You know, so I just thought I knew everything about Dracula, and then the idea that you get a note from Dracula and it's kind of in cabalistic symbols or something like that. Yeah, they really make concerted efforts to. Um make Nock, who of course is the uh, Renfield character with the name change. They, Nock, they, they, by the way, is a fantastic name, Nock. Yeah. <laughs> but they hint early on in the in one of the title cards that the town people have been wary of him for years. They don't trust him and of course there's there's some other uh, context there as well that uh, oh, the shifty Jew who has all the money in real estate. <laughs> Not too thinly veiled there, but um, I just, I just uh, like... Veiled? It's pretty overt, isn't it? Yeah, it I is mean, pretty overt. Well... <laughs> I mean, it's it's difficult because the writer um, Galen he he was actually from a Jewish background. I don't see much evidence of overt anti-Semitism in the in the lives of any of the key artistic players in this film. I'm not saying that's that's not in there. I mean, of course it is. You only have to look at Orlok to see what's going on here. You know, uh, apart from all the other associations, you know, plague that relates back to the medieval slur about the, the Jews brought the plague, and you know, and it, I mean, it's it's sort of watching it it's kind of startlingly prescient of the german nazi propaganda movies that would come 
uh, you know, a decade and a half, couple of decades later, you know, you've got the rat motif, you've got the deformity motifs, you've got all the loads of familiar motifs kind of predicted in this film. I don't think it's a question of them creating an anti-Semitic message that they then kind of try to hide. I think it's, I think it's more to do with them trying to connect with these older themes in German folklore and, and German romanticism. And there's a lot of dodgy stuff in these themes that they're connecting with. There's an element of the other, right? I mean, it, yeah. And the, the other is, but that's is it's kind of Bram Stoker's yeah. original sin, really. They're, they're adapting the book, and it's it's kind of just in the book. If you adapt that book, you're going to bring this with you. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I'm not. I wasn't trying to like denigrate the performers or the the creators of the the film. Right? No, no. But, I, I, I mean, but it's it's I pretty overt. I mean, it's you, you can't view this and not go, oh, well, that's a Jewish stereotype. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And at the same time, as much as it is, it is a stereotype, I sort of agree with Jack, where I don't think it was, you know, necessarily trying to uh, hit on anything specific, you know, like trying almost like a propaganda piece or something along that, that nature. I don't think they were going for that. But I do enjoy the idea that uh, Nock has been in collusion with Count Orlock for perhaps years and years, setting this thing all in the motion. And he's getting these uh, occult coded messages from Orlock to set up this uh, real estate deal and finally bring him over, which I think just kind of adds to the sort of gothic horror undertone of the whole thing, just kind of makes it a, a bit more of an actual horror movie, you know? You know, some of these movies, um, especially like 1931 Dracula from Universal, where there's hardly any horror at all in that film, where it's very much more like a romantic piece where it happens to have a vampire in it for a few minutes. This, this one at least tries to be, uh, you know, a tale about vampirism and horrors going on in the, in the background, you know, leeching into a community somewhere. So I, I kind of really like how they sort of set that up. It works pretty well, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's really the Jews come to town and they bring rats, <laughs> and the rats bring the plague, and then everybody dies, and that's the story of the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that uh, rewatching this, probably the element that I was most fascinated by was the incredible prominence that the plague has. And, yeah. and the way that the vampirism is directly connected with pestilence. I mean, it's, it's not even subtext. It's, it's text, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was, it, for, for me, that's the element that, that I was most fascinated by. And um, the fact that uh, Herzog, if anything, uh, enhances on that from the original was, yep. was uh, you know, surprising to me in, in seeing Herzog's version. I think that's a uh, really interesting, not only just because of, I mean, obviously there's the anti-Semitic reading, which I, I've said enough about that. I'm not going to keep pushing on that. Um, but there is this uh, this idea that the pestilence comes from, that disease comes from this supernatural place. And in fact, there is a, a reference to uh, Paracelsus in this film. They say, That's right, uh, the Van Helsing figure is, is referred to several times as a Paracelsian. Right. Um, which is uh, kind of one of those early anti-scholastic medical figures in the, uh, what, 16th century? Jack, you may know more about the history than I do. I think um, he was a bit earlier than 16th. Okay. Um, but, uh, well, I could be wrong about that. I'm not an expert. I, I mainly know about Paracelsus through his connection to the Gothic, because the Gothics were kind of interested in Paracelsus. I mean, he comes up a lot in, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, for instance. Sure. I mean, I, my understanding is that he's, he's essentially one of the early figures who is kind of connecting disease to something in the material world, but has not left behind that. It, we're, we're not talking about kind of an early scientific view, but definitely kind of moving past these sort of 
scholastic, everything is a metaphor, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. demons and humors and that sort of thing, that it, that it is a step in the direction of uh, what we would now think of as modern medicine. But mm-hmm. the idea that in, you know, 1841, I think is when this film was supposed to take place. Yeah. Um, which is, just as an aside, it's, it's ironic that now... 1922 is about halfway between when the, we are now and the uh, yeah. film set, you know? Yeah. Mm. And doesn't it create a weird sort of vertigo when you're watching people from the 1920s in costume from the 1840s? That's a, that adds, adds another kind of mirror to this great big hall of reflections when you look into it, right. I find. Anyway. Yeah. Mm. Oh, no, I've absolutely. Just, I've just looked up Paracelsus and he straddled the 15th and 16th century. So you were right, actually. I was right twice on this podcast. We can end now. We're good. (laughs) That's interesting. Like the black death and all that very much. So a lot of people believed in back in the day that it it was, there was supernatural causes, whether it was God's wrath upon the people or uh, witches causing it or something along those lines. Like there's actually a pretty interesting film that came out in the last few years with uh, Sheen Bean called black death. That's actually kind of focuses on that sort of idea of like a, a pagan village spreading uh, black death. Yeah. I, yeah, I watched that because that's the same director who made Creep and Triangle, which are a couple of films I quite like. I mentioned them in my little um, mm-hmm. insert bit for your for your for your bonus episode. Yeah, um, I didn't like it so much, but that's because there was lots of um, there was lots of torture in it, and I really don't like stuff like that. I, I turn things off if they have lots of torture scenes in them because I, I don't like them. But yeah, yeah it, was, I, it was an interesting film. I, I thought some of the themes they were they were going for were quite interesting. Um, um, well, yeah, okay. Well, well, given given uh, the fact that you have that aversion to Witchfinder General, I can definitely understand why you'd have yeah. the same aversion. Yeah, because very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, but yeah, that that sort of Black Death coming from the supernatural kind of thing is sort of very prevalent back in the day and and something has been examined a few times at, at the very least in literature and film so um i do like that it, it's 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 interesting to see uh, people back in the day who were not you know there was no science there was no scientific liter- literacy at, at all uh, mm. trying to make sense of why everyone was dying and, uh, and modern I... medicine is only about 30 or 40 years old at the time mm-hmm. this film is made i mean yeah. you know, like, so, so when you when you think about it on that regard i mean you're really talking about well, back in our grandparents' day, back before we had these like amazing advances in uh, you know things like clean water and yeah. washing our hands and like antiseptics and you know like these these astonishingly new modern things. Uh, back then, those people they thought you know disease was uh, brought by uh, this curse. But I mean, the fact that it equates those two things so concretely, I think, is interesting. The fact that the vampire comes with the rats, comes with the disease, and that the, the vampire becomes a uh, metaphor for disease and becomes uh, an instantiation of disease. And that that's, again, explicitly within the film. It would be interesting if there was plague going on and the vampire killing people, but there's not. It's just the vampire killing people. But you, yeah. you also have to remember, of course, this was made in 1922. There had just been a global flu pandemic. Right. Which had probably killed more people than died in the First World War. Not, I think, that people at the time necessarily pulled those things apart so much. I think people at the time experienced the First World War and then the global flu pandemic, which followed it immediately, as kind of one gigantic sustained, you know, catacrisis. I think that's how people experienced it. And I think that's really where this is coming from. I mean, it undoubtedly does connect to these older ideas, because I've been saying earlier about how the film is very determinedly looking back at aspects of German culture and German folklore 
floor. I mean, the, the original script was going to be a lot more heavy on this, and they had to cut some of it. But it was very, very determinedly looking back into German folklore and pre-war German culture, 19th century and pre-19th century German culture. It's very deliberate, and there is that the, there is undoubtedly also feed it undoubtedly also feeds into the anti-Semitic reading because it was a, a very popular medieval superstition that, that you know plague was brought by Jews, and that tied into, of course, other stuff about Jews. It was supposedly all that it was coming in trade ships, and the Jews, particularly in Germany, for for complex cultural reasons, the Jews were almost inextricably considered linked with trade. You know, that's why you have Nock and Orlock. They, they sort of adapt the stuff in Stoker, because it's in Stoker, as I say, but they adapt it for in, in German culture, and you have these implications because, you know, Nock is selling property, and Orlock is buying property, and, and all this stuff. Absolutely. But I think the reason this happens in this film is is actually fundamentally more to do with the fact that this is just two or three years after the end of the First World War, followed by this enormous crisis. And I think what the film is trying to do fundamentally is, in, in a way that's not really very coherent, and, and of course that can actually make horror films, because horror films are all about the irrational, it can actually make them more, the, the less coherent they are in some ways, the more powerful they are, because they just tap straight into the subconscious without filters, without shape, and so on. It's trying to get to grips with this massive crisis that sort of people at the time experienced it as this great big split down the middle of history. You know, everything had stopped making sense. I think that's, I think that's more to do with it, personally. Yeah, the world just sort of flipped over on its side. Yeah. Is, yeah. And um, I think if you look at Orlok that way, um, but then of course that does feed into what happened later culturally and politically in Germany, because a lot of what happened with, with the rise of Hitler was about him using the Jews as a group as scapegoats for the war. They supposedly started the war. They supposedly stabbed the German army in the back and made them lose the war. And they were responsible through it through for it through banking. And they were also responsible for it through Bolshevism, which was the threat from the East and so on. It's kind of inadvertently, it's incredibly prescient. You know, it looks like it's on the wrong side of history in a big, yeah. big way, this film. And yet it's kind of doing these things well, I'm not, I'm not saying it's innocent, because even at the time, you could have avoided these sorts of associations. But it's doing them without knowing what's around the corner, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, just thinking of, like, if, if Orlok in this film is viewed as this sort of... Uh this sort of deeply irrational thing that's standing at the center of society at this point, and that mm. is murdering human beings uh, in, in vast numbers, you know, connecting it to disease or connecting it to the war, connecting it to Judaism <laughs> or whatever. Mm. Um, that's a really fascinating meeting. And, and I really like that sort of connecting it that way that Orlock in the way he looks, in the way he behaves, in the way that, you know, he's the monster at the core of society and whatever he represents. But for the filmmakers and, and in this time period, he's just this other that is destroying us from within and our, mm. you know, the things that we value in our lives from within. That they're and, actually and can only be vanquished by sunlight, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Shine the light of day on it. This film is made before penicillin. You know, people yeah, thought right. sunlight was a cure for disease. Yeah, and I, I, that's how really how I look at him. I, I don't deny the anti-Semitic reading. Critics, of course, have gone the other way. They've said that it's it's prescient about the, the rise of Hitler and that he represents a sort of sick longing in German society for a leader. No matter how dreadful that leader is, he needs to come and, and change things, you know. And uh, that's that's actually something Herzog thought. Her, Werner Herzog himself has said that it's a sort of anti-fascist film avant la lettre. You know, it's about foreseeing the rise of something like 
like Hitler. Um, I, d- I don't know if I go along with that, but you can you can make the case. But um, yeah, I think well, it's fundamentally about that. I don't know that Nosferatu is. Yeah, I'd go. I'd, I'd agree with you about that. Actually, I think I would. Yeah, but for me, I think Nosferatu is more about this sort of scream of incomprehension, which for me, fascinatingly, although the film is kind of about trying to connect with the Gothic and the capital R romanticism, it actually in some ways has more in common with the the weird capital W. You know, it's more, it's got more in common with although it employs loads of gothic tropes, it actually kind of has more in common with Lovecraft and people like that who, who are writing these stories, yeah, around about this time, which are kind of about these gigantic screams of incomprehension, you know, these things that are coming from somewhere and just bringing this incomprehensible crisis with them and you don't know what the hell they are and what they mean and what's going on. That's true because there's um, one difference from this from like sort of traditional vampire folklore throughout the ages up to that point. This isn't necessarily a vampire that is destroyed by the cross or god or anything like that it is very much this kind of irrational alien monster Mm. that is destroyed by the hero having to basically sacrifice themselves at least in the herzog film uh the 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 original film gives you the uh sort of trite happy ending at 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 the very end but yeah it's a tragic happy ending isn't it because ellen i think ellen is supposed to die isn't she yeah 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 um, the Herzog film actually sort of re reinjects Christianity because there's a scene where um, Dracula, as he is in that, he he he's carrying his boxes into this old chapel and he actually shies away from a cross. Orlock in the original, he just didn't give a shit about. It. He, he walks past the church without noticing. And the the fabulous uh, iconic shot of the the plague ship gliding into port at Wiesbaden, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uncaptained, and the way it eclipses. Christopher Frayling always talks about this. The way it eclipses the cathedral in the background. Um, yeah. A shot that um, that Herzog actually copies. It's one of the shots that he that he copies quite closely in in homage. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you're absolutely right. Orlock in the first film, he's just completely Christianity is basically absent from the first film. It's one of the things that that, that it just takes out of the source material, along with the Su- the Lucy subplot and the three brides and anything about technology or science or rationality or anything like that. It just takes it out completely. Yeah. Well, there's not even a Van Helsing in the first film, unless d- depending on the print you see, there's no Van Helsing. There, there are some uh, English prints that rename the Doctor character in that Van Helsing, but really mm. the Doctor character in that is the uh, Stewart character from the novel, the uh, mental asylum director or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's who's not a scientist or a Christian? As no, far as he's a Paracelsian. <laughs> yeah. So, because of the uh, legal problems of this film, uh, Bram Stoker's widow basically destroyed the production company that created this film, uh, sued sued them into oblivion, basically, <laughs> and then got a print for herself to hold on to, and had all the other prints that she could find destroyed. But there, of course, there were some that were still left in some people's hands, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's just been dulled out slowly and slowly over the last century to the point now where we're actually getting good prints. You will see multiple cuts of this film running for anywhere from about 65 to the uh, full kind of 94-minute running time. That is due to both cuts and the fact that a lot of these prints are running at the wrong frame rate per second. If, if you notice, a lot of these you'll see they're cranked up way too far. They're going like twenty the traditional 24 frames per second of sort of modern films where this film was set more between somewhere to 18 to 22. Depending on the release of this, you can actually see the entire film 
in about 65 minutes when it's actually in an hour and a half film. I'm not going to go into the DVD info for this, by the way, because there's just too many fucking copies of this shit. <laughs> I am going to provide a link in the show notes of a very comprehensive breakdown of all the DVD and Blu-ray versions of this that are worth looking at. Uh, so anyone's interested in purchasing this, I would suggest you look and read that. I will tell you to avoid Nosferatu, the first vampire, which is on YouTube. If you if you have to see it, see it on YouTube. This is this fly-by-night video uh, release. It has a dirty, jumpy, bullshit VHS rip from some 18th fucking generation VHS tape somewhere. And someone had the idea of stealing typo negatives music and sticking it on the score. God. <laughs> which is... <sighs> Which is just the, and I'm not I'm not saying anything bad about typo negative. I'm just saying, this is the worst fucking possible thing anyone could have thought of to put on the score. I'm now going to do a version where I take that print and then score it with Nickelback just to make a oh, Jesus. Well, yeah, you'll be the worst war criminal in in the history of it because it's going to be look at this photograph with Orlock, you know, chewing on people, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this film has a distinction of not only having so many video releases, but it's had multiple, like, just countless scores redone because of public domain. And there's a lot of great ones out there. Like, James Bernard did one, which is fucking fantastic. That's the one I've got. Yeah, uh, the original was done by Hans Erdman. Um, That's the version I watched, and I will say that, I mean, both of these films, uh, the scores are phenomenal. Um, Mm. I I would like to uh, watch it with the James Bernard at some point, but uh, the Erdman version, I just, I I loved it. The Bernard actually turns it into a horror movie. The the Erdman Erdman one is good, but it's very it's kind of flowery. You know, it's like it's it's kind of a little, a little too upbeat for this kind of subject matter. You know, in in a way, um, it, it might be more authentic to the time. I suppose it is. The, it the, is. The yeah, Bernard one is more more effective now. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I think James, you and my both sort of growing up watching Hammer films, we just kind of latch on to James Bernard anyway. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's, it's kind of in our DNA almost. Um, I, I love the way that James Bernard gives the theme um, sort of four notes, you know, I can't remember the tune, but it's sort of Nosferatu, like that, like yeah. he does in the in the Hammer Dracula scores. Yeah. Right? Dracula. It, it's, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, Dracula. Yeah. When yeah. I was a kid, I actually made up lyrics for that. It, it went sort of like... Um, <laughs> Dracula, I'm scared of Dracula. <laughs> I had loads of rhymes in there, like, you know, I, I'll suck blood out of you from Transylvania <laughs> and stuff like this. It went on for fucking ages. Oh, shit. Um, but yeah, uh, I'll say at the very least, the uh, typo negative version of this one. And all, all the, by the way, there's also, uh, it only runs uh, for 65 minutes or so. It's, and, and that's including a three-minute tacked-on introduction by uh, David Carradine. Uh, j- just out of nowhere, just tacked on. Nosferatu. Because I think Nosferatu, I think, you know what this film needs? A little David Carradine to introduce it, to, to give <laughs> yeah. it context, you know? That's the only saving grace, uh, other than, you know, watching a car wreck for a car wreck's sake, but the fact that uh, it only runs, like, 65 minutes, so... If, if 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 you actually, I'm, I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna put a link in the show notes. If you, if you want to see how bad Nosferatu can get, you can watch this version and <laughs> then yeah, thank me when you read the, the article about just how many versions there are out there and how many great ones there are out there to get. 
I was uh, originally going to watch this on Amazon Prime because this is their, but the version that you can watch for free on Amazon Prime is one of the shitty ones. And oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, you can watch the really beautiful uh, version, but you had to pay three dollars for it. No, and fuck that three dollars. Let's go yeah. find it on YouTube. I'm just really yeah. surprised Criterion hasn't released a version of this. Uh, the version I have was released by the BFI, British Film yeah, Institute. That's, that might, that's, that's that's your one, is it? Uh, that's I don't. Two thousand six. Right? No, the the one I've got is the 1997 one, which was restored okay. by Photoplay for Channel Four. It's released under the Four Silence label, and yeah. it was put on DVD by the BFI. And that's got uh, it's got the right running time, it's got the color tints, it's got the James Bernard score. Yeah, um, I'd recommend that one personally. Yeah, that that would that would probably be the best one to go for. Um, there, there's only like actually out of all the versions, there's only a handful of like that, that can be actually considered restorations. And they've been re-released multiple times, so you can find different iterations of the BFI one, for for mm. example. The, the, um, the BFI one I was just talking about, it's got the restored graphic design in the in the intertitles as well, which is very important because mm-hmm. it was this film was this film was conceived very much total cinema. You know, they worked very hard on getting all the the, the typefaces for the intertitles right and the graphics for the intertitle. They, the intertitles they're all done lovingly by hand because there's loads of. One of the things this this film does take from the novel is sort of the concentration on texts, yes. Because the the novel is a is an epistolary novel, and it's made up of bits of diaries and journals and yes. newspaper quotes and stuff. And this film kind of adapts that in that there's loads and loads of uh, intertitles that are pages from books and pages from newspapers and stuff like that. And they're all gorgeously designed in that uh, in that way, that early twenties way. And uh, yeah, the version I've got restores that. It's very important, I would say. Yeah. There's one more thing I wanted to talk about with the original. We, I won't take long, but I just wanted to mention some of the, the special effects, which are mm-hmm. inc- incredibly important for the time. Uh, and I mean, we've talked about the color tinting. That was quite an innovation. But you also have stop motion and fast motion, right. um, which sat, the fast motion stuff, it's kind of fascinating because now it kind of looks a bit comic. Because we now, because of subsequent developments, I suppose, in, in our in cinema and consequently in visual literacy and that we've all grown up with, comic speeded up stuff looks funny. But at the time, it was very um, disorienting to people. People weren't sure what the hell they were looking at. It was, it was you know, because it was all very new. People hadn't quite, because these films were kind of, they were writing the language of cinema and people were learning it as they went to the, uh, went to the cinema. What's interesting to me, and this is covered in the little, documentary with christopher frailing on the uh, sort of on the extras on the dvd i have he talks really interestingly about this which is that murnau and the filmmakers thought of the speeded up stuff as eerie you know as supernatural as well yeah as, they, the carriage ride they yeah. actually you have the close-up shot of uh, the harker character uh, whatever he's called harder or whatever uh, hutter in in the, in the film um mm. where he peeks his head out and it looks like they're going super fast so it's like implied that as soon as Nosferatu picks him up, they're actually going that fast in the carriage. Like, mm. it's a supernatural speed up, all, yeah. almost, you know. But it's, it, it, another thing I find interesting about it is that it is definitely using modern and modernist techniques, but it's using them diegetically, which is that we're not, we're not watching the, the visuals being manipulated or distorted for sort of surreal effect. What we're, what we're supposed to be watching is something that's really happening. You know, when, mm. when that scene where Orlok is putting the boxes on the cart, it's sped up. But yeah. it's not sped up for the purposes of creating a surreal effect. It's sped up to indicate literally that he's doing it that quickly. So yeah. that, that for me is really emblematic of this, this film's sort of tortured relationship with expressionism.
Okay, we'll get into it. Nosferatu the Vampire, 20th Century Fox. Nosferatu, the Vampire, a 
film unlike any Dracula film ever made. Nosferatu, the vampire. Directed by Werner Herzog. Written by Werner Herzog, of course, based on the Bram Stoker story. And it's starring the insane Klaus Kinski as Count Dracula, Isabel Edjani as Lucy Harker, Bruno Gans, uh, Hitler himself, as Jonathan Harker, <laughs> Roland Topor as Renfield, Walter Lingast as Dr. Van Helsing, Dan Van Hosen as the Warden, Jan Groth as the Harbormaster, and Karsten Bodinus as Schrader. And again, we'll go to you, Jack, first for your sort of uh, initial impressions on this one. I, I kind of already done it, really. I think when you mm. asked me my my initial impressions of the first one way back four hours ago at the start of this podcast, <laughs> um, I, I kind of talked a bit about how I first saw the the remake as well and and uh, what it what it meant to me a bit. I do love this film. I think it's gorgeous in all sorts of ways. It, I think it's probably the the greatest modern vampire film. You know, the greatest post-war vampire film, anyway, post-Second World War. I, I, it's difficult to think of another. You mean not as really. good as, you mean better than the Coppola version, Jack? You know, the Coppola version. Um, I have a really complex relationship with that one because I saw it at the cinema when it first came out because I was still a big Dracula fan in 1992. Well, actually, 1992, uh, yeah, I would have been 16, which is around about the time I would have seen these these movies we're talking about. Yeah, probably within the year of uh, Coppola's Dracula coming out. And of course, um, Coppola's Dracula has loads and loads of references to both these films. And I was still a big Dracula fan, and I was terribly sort of texturally purist. You know, I thought, oh, somebody needs to make a film where they they, they just film the the Stoker novel. You know, that's what they should do instead of all. And of course, that's that's stupid and wrong, because the Stoker novel is actually kind of a bit shit, to be honest. (laughs) Large sections of it are anyway. There's bits of it that are really good, but everything great about the Stoker novels sort of creeps in under Stoker's radar without him noticing. And people who adapt it are quite right to just jettison his plots and his characters and concentrate on getting the, the subtextual stuff in. Yeah. But at the time, that wasn't how I thought. So I was terribly excited about the guy who made The Godfather and and The Conversation and Apocalypse Now doing Dracula, you know. And I went to see it and I walked out the cinema thinking, what the fuck was that? <laughs> you know, I was absolutely disgusted with it. I hated it. I was, you know, so I was a bore on the subject. Anybody mentioned that film, I talked their Years off for hours about how much how terrible it was over the years. Yeah, that version has boobs, so you know. <laughs> yes, and yeah. a woman apparently biting Keanu Reeves's cock off. And it's, as I say, over the years, I've sort of I've grown to quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's that guy uh, Gustav von Wagenheim he gets a lot of stick for his uh, OTT expressionist acting in the first Nosferatu I think he's still better more naturalistic than Keanu Reeves oh, in the same role yeah. um, <laughs> this, this, is, this is pre-Johnny mnemonic Keanu Reeves so that says something right <laughs> this there post Bill and Ted's bogus journey before Johnny mnemonic <laughs> Yeah. I, I have to say, in my family, it's become kind of an, a running joke to sort of parody bits of that performance, which, I can't, again, I have a complex relationship with it because it's got to be one of the worst acting jobs I've ever seen in a, in a big movie. This is Reeves as, as Jonathan Arker. But it's, it's given me so much pleasure over the years, you know, suddenly just in, in sort of family gatherings announcing, I know where the bastard sleeps, you know, <laughs> and everybody just pissing themselves laughing. Um, 
But yeah, what the fuck? So was the it? really funnier version of the Dracula mythos: the Mel Brooks Dracula Dead or Loving It, or the Bram Stoker uh, Dracula from. Oh uh, uh, well, the I think I think we I think we mentioned in the episode that the Dead and Loving It kind of does the the original story more justice in a, in a lot of ways. I'm just kind of imagining poor Anthony Hopkins like having to act alongside Keanu Reeves and just probably silently thinking to himself, "What the fuck did I get into here?" Well, poor everyone, really. I mean, yeah. we're on a rider and. Everyone, Richard E. Grant, for God's sake. <laughs> but Gary Oldman opposite Keanu Reeves, you know, what? <laughs> yeah, God. But he was he was trying to sell it. And, uh, of course, people forget um, Coppola's Dracula was his big sort of proving himself to the studios movie. You know, I yeah, can make yeah. a big commercial movie in budget, on schedule, and make money for you. Please give me a job. You know, that was what it was for. <laughs> yeah. We're not um, going to have anyone go crazy. We're not going to have anyone nope. have heart attacks. You know, it's, nope. it's going to be fun. So, of course, the thing to do is to hire Gary Oldman uh, for the lead when he's at the height of his alcoholism crisis. Yeah. Um, good, good move. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, we, but we're not talking about that one. And I've lost my train of thought now. Um, I was That's just saying, I think the remake, uh, the remake of Nosferatu is probably the greatest post-Second World War vampire film. Um, it's difficult to think of anything else that comes <sighs> close. Uh, and it is it is a fascinating work of art in its own right. You know, it's very much got its own fish to fry, so to speak. It thinks about its source material. You know, it doesn't just adapt it. It doesn't just copy it. It doesn't just reference it. It actually thinks about it and it engages with it. And it has a relationship with the first film. You know, it's I'm going to I'm going to come out and just lay this on the line and, you know, feel feel free to, to kick me all over the place. This has got to be the greatest remake in cinema history. I totally agree. Hands down. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of a. Yeah, I'll I'll accept that for now, Jack. Mm. Three days from now on Twitter, I'll start I'll start berating you for something. But I can't mm. think of Th- one. this. This is very familiar to me actually, because uh, Phil Sandifer keeps doing this to me. He will come out with something about you know something that Stephen Moffat did right, and I can't immediately think of why he's wrong. So I have to say, okay, Phil, I'll provisionally accept that one. And then you know, a couple <laughs> of days go by, and I remember the, the 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 fourteen exceptions to what Phil has said, and I I pick a fight with him <laughs> except that i don't i don't do that at all <laughs> uh, you just but, see it silently in the background that's right yes yes in impotent fury but daniel since this is a first uh, watch for you very interested in hearing your uh, initial sort of thoughts on this one i'm always interested in hearing daniel's thoughts well sometimes <laughs> <laughs> except when i disagree with you i get it you're not allowed to do that this is uh a fascinating film. I, I, you know, all of the ideas that are in the original, um, all the stuff that's going on with the plague and the, uh, you know, the sort of metaphor of vampirism is is disease um, and immigration, all that stuff. All of it is transported here. I was mesmerized by this film. I mean, despite having, I mean, in in places, it's almost a shot for shot remake of the original. Mm-hmm. Um, there are sequences that feel very much like. It almost feels like Herzog is working off the same script, but just, you know, shooting it in his own way. He basically um, is, yes. Okay. Um, I know he's he's credited as the writer on the on the uh, film. Well, so what, what, what he did is he, he basically sort of tied in the best stuff from Murnau's version, and he he brought a lot more from the novel back together. So technically it's his script, but, I mean, he's basically right. just piling those two things together sequences like the uh the scene where dracula 
Sorry. <laughs> it's hard for me to say Dracula now just because I'm so used to not thinking of him as Dracula. From yeah. the original. Um, the sequence is like where Dracula, um, the guy first cuts his finger. It feels like that could, you could almost have literally just had two cameras going and one of them is filming Nosferatu and the other is filming Herzog's version. Um, in terms of the way that the staging is done, uh, the way that he climbs down the the, the rope, um, <clears throat> the, the uh, feels very. This could have been shot at the exact same moment, just through Herzog's lens, um, and that's that's kind of where there's this very clear, like watching them both two days apart. You know, there's this very real symmetry and a very real um, echoing and mirroring that's kind of going on. At the same time, it's a dramatically different film. Um, in terms of particular the way that Lucy's character is treated. And uh, there are cats in this one as well. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> more creatures of the night, more beautiful yeah, more, music. Creatures, more creatures of the night, yeah. A, a, um, a direct reference at the start, there's kittens playing with a locket. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved Lucy's character in this. I love how much oh, she's yeah. going to do in this. Uh, she basically becomes, I mean, she's she's standing against Van Helsing. Van Helsing's being a shithead. Yeah. <laughs> well, Van Helsing's, a, Van Helsing's this coward, really. Like, he's just meek. Right cowardly guy like he's he's definitely not the the character you, you I mean, get this is, this is this is like this is the the white uh like guy uh superhuman figure uh, being defeated by a woman who just won't take his shit anymore I'm, I'm so, gonna, yeah, I'm gonna, I love this. You know, I'm going mean? to gush now, right? Okay. This film actually has a scene where Dracula creeps into a woman's bedroom at night and mm-hmm. she fights him off by debating him. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. fuck. Although, although her her final retort is basically, I got a cross around my bosom, so fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But she holds him off all the way by, but you know, she quotes theology at him. She's giving him, she's giving him, you know, Schopenhauer and existentialism. That's how she's fighting. Well, well, yeah, he's in her bedroom, looming over her, and that's yeah, how she, she's fighting. Yeah, she's not only debating him; she's basically having, you know, uh, Dracula's trying to negotiate a contract of sorts. Yeah. And she's like having none of it, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, he actually says yeah, he wants no. her to be his ally. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, she becomes. I mean, is, is one of the one of the weaknesses of the original. I mean, and, and as much as I mean, I love the original. One of the weaknesses is essentially the second half just kind of becomes its mood as opposed to uh, structure to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, basically it's our, our, our kind of uh, the, the wife character just kind of becomes the object that the vampire is coming after and uh, the disease. And, you know, it's, it's very strong visually, but it just kind of becomes okay. And this is just a threat. Herzog seems to realize just how limp dramatically the second half of the original is and realizes how, what, what a shitty hero, uh, what's his name? Bruno Gonz's character is and goes, yeah, uh, yeah so we're going to, Oh, and who's here? Don't give it to Van Helsing. Van Helsing's a shitty guy. Give it to Lucy. And that's, for me, that is the central thing that I love about this film. That was the biggest surprise for me was how amazing not only the performance, but the, the writing is around her. I mean, this feels again extremely modern in terms of. I mean, I'd really want to. I really want Tumblr to rediscover this film. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and now it would be great to see a billion memes uh, around this. You know, the same the same fan base that discovered Fury Road. I want to discover uh, Herzog's uh, Nosferatu. And yeah, like I don't know that I have more like thoughts in terms of the story, just because we kind of covered a lot of it, and it is similar in a lot of ways. But I love that character, and I love the way that the film ends with her deciding to do this. 
you know, as opposed to it feels like something she's resigned to in the original. Like, this is something, no, I'm going to actively kill this vampire. Done. Herzog completely reverses the relationship between her and Nosferatu, right? In the original, Mm -hmm. I'll just call him Nosferatu because he's Orlok in one and Dracula in the other because it was in the public domain by the time Herzog was making this film. Nosferatu in the original, she experiences him as a psychic violation. He's yeah. in her head. His presence <sighs> is kind of violating her head, her heart, her relationships, everything. She's she's in pain. Um, Greta Schroeder plays Ellen as sort of in a in a state of perpetual angst and and fear and agony. Like this presence of this thing just across the street. It's you know she's wandering around clutching her head and stuff like this. In the remake, Herzog directly reverses it so that the psychic violation is actually the other way round. Yes. It's actually Nosferatu who is psychologically disturbed by the presence of Lucy in his head. And you see that in the scene where he's feeding on Jonathan. She senses it in her sleep thousands of miles away, wakes up and screams, and he hears it, and it stops him doing it. It's actually a direct reversal. And similarly, in the original, when she makes her sacrifice, it's because she's a pure woman and she's sacrificing herself for love for her husband and all that lovely sort of stuff. In the remake, she's already lost her husband. Um, yeah. she, she must know that. She's worked that out. He doesn't remember who she is. He's on his way to becoming a vampire. She's not directly personally threatened. She's already debated this guy out of her bedroom through a combination of Schopenhauer and, you know, having a cross around her neck. Um, <laughs> she does it out of a sense of it's social a responsibility. <laughs> she actually does it to save her community. I mean, there's some things I can pick out there because there's something wonderful about the chaos that comes to the community. This is, I mean, the scene for me that makes the entire movie and lifts it beyond brilliant into something completely different is the, the sort of post-apocalyptic yeah. scenes in the town after the plague has hit loads of people have died and you have this kind of bonfire of the vanities where people are burning their shit and they're having this sort of carnival you know in the town square this carnival of death they've, they've all got the plague they're all dying they've burned all their shit you know they've lost their attachment to material goods they've lost their attachment to the idea of just living for the sake of it they've realized that there's worse things than death which is what Nosferatu already knows because he's lived for hundreds of years and he's fucking miserable, you know, and you have this profound sort of social transformation where they lose their attachment to all these bourgeois trappings and all this material stuff. And in a dark and, and you know, in, in a perverse way, they found a kind of freedom. Um, and it's kind of revolutionary. It's definitely, a, you know, you couldn't have made this film before the 60s, for instance. And yet Lucy is kind of in, op- in opposition to that. She walks through it all and she's not terribly impressed. And she sort of shrugs off efforts to, to draw her into the bacchanal, you know. Um, so her uh, defeat of Dracula is ultimately you could look upon it as kind of trying to restore social order, you know, destroy this force that is destroying bourgeois social order. You could look at it that way. But on just the character level, what she does is incredibly admirable, far more so than the the, the analog character in the first film, who just does it basically from a kind of reflex of, you know, virtuous womanhood mixed with helpless suffering. Yeah, I've always thought that her character kind of comes to the realization that, okay, her town's not perfect. It's Actually, there's a lot of problems with her town. And she's not necessarily interested in saving it when, once she sees the end results. I think she's much more just kind of offended and kind of in a vengeful mood. As you killed my husband, who was a decent, good man. And that was all just wiped away. Like, I think she knows 
pretty much that it's all done. She's never going to have her husband back. Her her community is dead. Mm. I don't think she's necessarily trying to restore social order at this point. It's just it's more like fuck you. It's I'm I'm going to I'm well, I'm not gonna, I'm not sure. going to take this shit. You know. Yeah. I, I wasn't talking so much about her 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 personal motivation in character terms. I was just in terms of the the role she she plays. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think destroying the monster is a good thing, even if the monster the response to the monster destroys a certain degree of uh, social stratification and, and bourgeois value. You know, like mm-hmm. the monster is still killing people, and and killing the monster is still a a, a positive thing. It's um, definitely you know on on that level of narrative, yeah. But one of the fascinating things about this film is the way it makes the the monster into a very ambiguous force of of social change. You know, it takes this thing that is just an ambiguous horror, an ambiguous crisis, which is understandable in 1922. We talked about that, you know, and it, it, it says, well, you know, sometimes these things aren't all bad. Sometimes these things can be liberatory, which yeah, is very and, definitely a post-war, post-60s point of view. Yeah. The, the, the thing I appreciate the most about this is that it actually makes the, uh, the Dracula character an actual character as yeah. opposed to the, as the first film. The first film is more, I've seen him described as, a rodent or an insect, and it's very much like that in the in the original film, where there's really no character there. It's just it's just a monster, like this is straight directly up compared to animals all the way through. You know, yeah. from he, he, he's and just Venus flytraps to mosquitoes, and yeah, he's just a grotesque. He's just mm. uh, yeah. yeah. Here, here, Kinski Kinski's uh, performance and the way the character's written. He's very much a sad, pathetic character. He is horrific, he's frightening, but he's also incredibly pathetic. He wants to die, but he can't kill himself. He's a vampire who wants to partake in humanity. He wants to partake in human customs and and the, and the things he knew before he became a vampire. So he, he wants to have a woman. He wants to feel love again, you know. He, he wants these things. But at the same time, he's, he's this monstrously evil thing as well. So he's never going to really have that. And it, it's it's basically everything that Anne Rice says again and again and again and again at tedious length over about eight novels, condensed <laughs> into four or five lines of dialogue. Yeah. And uh, Kinski's performance here is fucking amazing. Yeah. Can we say this uh, is I'll, the greatest Kinski performance? It is the greatest Kinski performance for my it money. Is, yeah, um, it is the greatest Kinski and performance. And part of the part of the reason, and one of the most sort of uh, magnificent things about this is that. Herzog managed to get a restrained performance from him in this. Uh, this was like I think the second film they did together out of like what five or five or seven I can't remember. I think they both were kind of on the same wavelength for this. Herzog said that this was basically his attempt to sort of connect to sort of his grandfathers of cinema because he didn't really have any fathers as far as cinema goes because there was basically a whole generation that was basically wiped out by the Nazis whether they were outright killed run out of the country or became collaborators you know and it's a very uh, noble goal I think he he was trying to sort of connect back to traditions of Germanic cinema before the Nazis came into power he he had this sort of reverence for this film he he considers the original Nosferatu the greatest German film ever made he said it multiple times in many interviews and I th- I kind of think Kinski you know kind of came on board to that because apparently this is the most well behaved he was ever on a, a Herzog <laughs> set apparently very restrained performance. But at the same time, like you look at that scene where uh, Harker cuts himself, yep. the madness in the the animal madness, like the way he breathes and stuff, yeah. just incredibly intense. It, it's all the scarier. He's all the scarier to me because he's weak. 
mm-hmm. he, he comes across as incredibly frail. I mean, it, it, it's weird because he manages to be absolutely terrifying by being frail and, and pale and weak and pathetic. Um, and I think that scene in particular with the where he tr- tries not to do it and then he swings around and can't help himself. You know, yeah. he actually makes a kind of despairing noise as he swings around. And yeah. it's, um, it's, it's, it's addiction, isn't it? It's, you know, I, I'm trying desperately not to, but I just can't not do it. And this, he packs this kind of self-loathing and shame and and even embarrassment into the noise he makes and the body language where he kind of hunches over and he tries to hide from harker what he's doing he tries to sort of enclose harker's hand inside his own and bend over it so he could it's 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 like someone in engaging in you know public um shooting up or something like that who's desperately Mm -hmm. ashamed of the fact that they're a slave to this this habit and it's it's weird it's something he does all the way through the film he's kind of breathless and his voice is barely there and he looks unfocused and and it's it's weird the way he makes it he makes the character all the more terrifying for being you know in in some ways at least kind of as i say feeble he sells it as well in his initial uh confrontation with lucy hmm like yeah. when he when she rejects him, <clears throat> like just just the way his his voice goes, like this the 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 his his shoulders just slope and his head goes down and he's and he's, yeah. he's over there like very 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 intense and I, I like how and this is not some revelation like his his hands uh, it's been noted before in many reviews and talks about this film how they're like kind of like almost like spiders like the way his hands move yeah uh, very almost independently of him. Uh, they're 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 almost like sensory organs of some sort. They're like tentacles. Yeah, and and the way he moves around in the night, it it actually kind of sells that idea of Dracula, just the the character in its pure essence being connected to the night. I feel like when he's w- running around with Wismar, and he's you know he stops and he looks around and he's, he's like he's hearing something or seeing something we don't hear or see. Hmm. I I just love that performance. I, I love those little bits of that performance where he's just he's detached from anything else going on and he's like hearing something or seeing something elsewhere. His hands are moving somewhere, detecting something maybe that's yeah. somewhere outside of him. Uh, <laughs> it, it just sells that he's definitely not a creature of this world anymore. Like he, yeah. he's just different. Well, he's, he, he really is a creature of the past that's kind of been forced to be held over into the present, mm-hmm. um, which, which kind of works metatextually because Nosferatu is, you know, in terms of the character, he is that as well. He is literally a character from something much older who's been brought into, you know, from the 1920s, brought into the 70s and this character. Is, yeah. And um, yeah, it, it's actually, it's painful to watch and it's really refreshing as well because so many vampires, most vampires are actually a, 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 a power fantasy. It's about... Um, you know, either you fantasize about having that power or in some other way you fantasize about being subject to it. Um, whereas if you think about what it would actually be like to be a creature that couldn't go out in the daylight or you'd actually burn to death or, or die from, you know, just contact with sunlight, um, all these vulnerabilities that you have and the, the, the inability to get older, the inability to die, the inability to connect with anybody, the inability to have, he says at one point, doesn't he, that I, I wish I could partake of love or something something like that. Yeah, this, uh, this gives the impression of actually somebody really thinking about what it would be like to be a creature like that. Yeah. And there have been other attempts, like in 
interview with the vampire you know but that's that's very glib to me because even even the louis character in that book and film is still is still very glamorous you know you can still you can it's there's still a fantasy of being that kind of sad unhappy character whereas in this there's no there's no kind of vicarious pleasure to take there's, in the character there's no romance just, no none at all you're just watching somebody who's suffering they're incredibly dangerous and 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 loathsome but they're they're also they're they're also sort of in incredible misery. Um, yeah, like, well, he, what it would he, be like. Yeah, he he exposes his he exposes like his inner feelings and desires to Lucy. Like he, he just mm. opens right up and he's like, for me, the absence of love is the most abject pain you can mm. feel. Like he, 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 he just throws it all on, uh, right on the table. And Lucy's like, fuck you, you you killed yeah. my husband, you bitch. Absolutely. She says, come she's, on, I'm a nice guy. Come on, yeah, come on. This, yeah. this is what I was going to say. She's absolutely right to have no sympathy for him because he's done horrific things. But you can also see from his point of view what it what it must be like. You you literally cannot meet new people. You cannot travel somewhere new. You cannot have new relationships without bringing. You know, he he goes for a holiday basically and brings absolute catastrophe to the place mm-hmm. he goes to. And he doesn't yeah. seem to, he's not reveling in it. There's no sense in which he's like, ha I shall kill you all. You know, he's, he's enjoying the, the fact that he's brought this plague. It's just followed him. You know, yeah, like he kind of, imagine like everywhere you go, you take plague rats, whether you like it or not. You know, he's, he's like, uh, he's like Pigpen and fucking peanuts, you know, <laughs> like he's got a cloud of dirt around him, right? I mean, yeah, he, well, doesn't, he doesn't even care. He doesn't care. Like he, he comes there and Renfield hooks up with him and Renfield's just this annoyance to him at this point. It's like, and he can't even be bothered to kill him. He's just like, go, go up to Riga up north and take the rats with you or whatever, you know? He just pushes <laughs> him away. Yeah. That wonderful gesture of, go away. Yeah. <laughs> Goddamn. Can we, can we talk about the rats for a second? Because oh, uh, yes. I was, the rats. I was, I had, I had two references when I was watching this. And uh, one of which I know you'll know, Jack, uh, because I very clearly in like the uh, the sequence where there's the the party at the table, the the very proper party, uh, mm. which then ends with a table full of rats. I was yes. thinking about the, the uh, Alice in Wonderland, yes, um, which you discussed on a, on a previous Shepcast. And obviously, you're talking about Kensky and Herzog, and I kept thinking about the monkeys uh, in Igiri, the the Wrath of God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and in that film, the monkeys are a uh, sort of a metaphor for the fecundity of the jungle, kind of taking over this, uh, you know, kind of uh, destroying this imperialist ambition. Of yeah, it's basically you know. just being absorbed into the jungle. Like. Right. Whereas, whereas here, the Kinski, <laughs> the Kinski character brings this with him and is uh, destroying this other thing. Uh, which I thought was a really interesting kind of dynamic, a dichotomy almost between the the way that the the kind of overwhelming nature is used between the two films. Yeah, yeah. I do think this there's, there's something in this film where this I mean, it's not in the first film, but I think it's very much in the second film, which is that this society invites its own destruction. Yeah, you 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 feel much more the sense that it's sort of sold him the house. It's sent a trade representative out there, an estate agent out there. You know, it, it's it invited him, and you know the the trade ships are you know in and out of that port all the time i mean it's in it's it's in delft as well of course which is a big trade uh, i think it's a big trading port anyway historically anyway in the rise of of holland you know it's not diegetically set in delft but that's where it's filmed you know you can't escape those those associations and yeah that that sort of wonderful parody of the last supper um combined with as you say the uh 
the, the dinner party in Wonderland. It just goes on forever because they're stuck in time in that dinner party. It just goes right. round and round and yeah. round forever. And yeah. of course, they use a lot of rats where they had to uh, dye them. Apparently, um, yeah. There Sadly, some... they did that by plunging them into red hot vats of of paint. Yeah. Um, there was actually a a sort of mini scandal because they had a a guy who was like the the animal coordinator on the film who quit because they were were being treated so badly. Yeah. And loads of them died and ate each other and stuff like that. Yeah, apparently a lot of them ate each other on the transport over to to the shooting location. Uh, And loads of them escaped despite the fact that the filmmaker promised the the mayor that that wouldn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) And and that is the worst thing that ever happened on a Herzog film. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, her 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 song has been par for the pretty, course for her song, right? You know. Well, well, that, that that's not even that's not even uh, the one dodgy thing he did on this film alone. I mean, you you look mm. at the opening with the mummies from the yeah. the, the Guanajuato uh, Museum in Mexico. He he took them out of okay. Here here's here's what Herzog did. Okay, first off, his visa was expiring in the U.S. So he went to Mexico to escape being deported to Germany. This was before he was making films. And he discovered this museum with these, these bodies in it. And, and this, these bodies were from a cholera epidemic in 1833. Mm. And because they only had this narrow graveyard in this ravine, they were constantly digging them up and putting them outside and display somewhere, sort of like an ossuary of sorts, so they could have room for new bodies. So he came back here and he basically took these bodies out of these glass cases they were in at this point that he found them in and lined them up against a wall and filmed them for, for this. And it works though. I mean, it's, it's a very good way to sort of intro into this film, just kind of foreshadowing the sort of disease and decay and, and sort of horror of the whole, the whole film. But uh, you know, Herzog was not, was not adverse going outside the law as far as uh, doing oh God, some no. of his film techniques. Goddamn. I mean, the, the man, and, and the man, Good taste as well. <laughs> yeah, no, the man. The, I mean, in in a lot of ways, the man was every much as crazy as fucking Kinski was. I mean, oh, yeah. well, there's uh, a reason they worked together. You know, twenty five thousand yeah. times. Mm. You know? Yeah, but I just um, looked up Delft, and it was not a trading port. So please cut out uh, that bit where I talked bollocks about it. <laughs> and well, and and I, 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 I couldn't find. You never confirmation. Cut my bullshit, so we should leave yours. In <laughs> and, and as long as you leave a... in that bit where I ask you to cut it out, that'll cover it. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't find a confirmation to this, but some of the building, it, like they weren't given permission to shoot in Wismar, but some of the buildings they look exactly like the stuff from the original. It, it looks dead on exactly the, the same the same streets from the original. In in some cases, where I'm kind of thinking he snuck into Wismar and shot, did some shots. Like I, I don't know, wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, so this one it reverses the roles of uh, Lucy and Mina from the original. Par for the course for Dracula adaptations. Yeah, and it, it, the weird yeah. thing when people adapt Dracula, they just as long as they use the names, but they use them to apply to any character. You know. Yeah, that that's sort of the connection I, I took for the like the Hammer one, where very the the Hammer one does a lot of the same things where. It, it cuts characters, it reverses characters around, it shortened the story, just sort of got to the base elements, very much like this one does in, in a lot of ways. And the, um, the, the story can stand shortening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Kinski is, as well, interestingly enough, he he played Renfield in Jesse Franco's uh, Count Dracula, 1970. That's right, yeah. which I've still never seen. That's one of those ones I've always been meaning to get around to. But Yeah, um... it's, actually, it's actually pretty good. Christopher Lee actually, you know, talked it up, like, this was probably the most authentic Dracula ever played. You know, mm. 
even if the movie wasn't super great. And what, I mean, what, clearly, clearly the greatest of the <laughs> Dracula adaptations is Vampiro's Lesbos. I mean, oh, clearly yeah. that's the yeah. that's the the gold standard. Might uh, have to might have to disagree with you slightly there. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Um, well, I almost threw that joke in in the in the uh, synopsis, but you know I, I left uh, it out for you, Jack. You know. <laughs> Uh, what did you guys think of Roland Topar as Renfield uh, for this? He's doing his trade up Peter Lorre? <laughs> in, in a way, because, well, uh, he, he was an artist and writer. He actually worked with Jadarwas, uh I can't even pronounce his fucking name, El, the guy who directed El, El Topo. Hodorowski. Hodorowski, there you go. He worked with him in, in certain projects and stuff, but he was hired for his laugh, basically. Yeah. Uh, although, although apparently Herzog says his laugh isn't even really heard on the soundtrack, apparently, because he's French and it was dubbed. So it was someone else doing oh, that laugh, apparently. Oh, no, you've just you've just spoiled a little tiny bit of the film for me. <laughs> a little tiny bit. Um, I, I don't know. I think if, if you just naturally look that much like Peter Laurie, you've kind of got to capitalize on it, haven't you? You know, yeah, you'd be wasting yeah. it otherwise. I, I actually really love that performance. I, I, to me, he comes over as almost a man suffering from Tourette's, you know, like he can't help it. Know. He can't stop himself. And he looks, there are bits where he looks legitimately sort of tortured by his inability to stop laughing, um, which yeah. is quite unnerving. It's um, an astonishing performance. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, when I say he's doing a shit up Peter Laurie, I mean that as the deepest compliment. Mm. Because yeah. Given this role, what else do you do except go go full Peter Laurie? You know? I, I really wish we could have had Peter Laurie play Renfield, um, oh, but yeah. it, given that that sadly never happened, this is the next best. Although I still do think the greatest screen Renfield ever is Tom Waits in the Coppola. Drive. Yes, totally agree. Totally agree. Tom, Tom Waits is the best thing in that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> Tom Waits is the best thing in a lot of things. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just brief mention of like I, I think one of the most impressive sequences in this is basically Harker's journey to Count Castle oh, Dracula. Yeah. Um, I, 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 right? I love I love the scope and scale of this. I love um, you get uh, Wagner's Reinhold Prelude. Mm. It's the music very you know very majestic, very work ver- works on the same level as the music for two thousand and one. It's got that yeah. same sort of scope to it, right? Yeah, um, I, I'm a, I really appreciate that because I'm a big Wagner fan. So when that comes up, I always really enjoy that. Yeah, and it's I love the way it's used as well because I, that's one of my favorite sequences in the film because in, in the original, there is a similar, there's a very similar sequence. There's kind of a moment where Harker crosses a bridge and it's like, as he goes over the bridge, which is a shot that's almost directly copied in the Hammer original, actually, from 50, 58 or whenever it was. There's like a sense that the minute he crosses that bridge, kind of, he's in a different world. Like he's yes. crossed the, the proverbial portal to fairy, you know. I mean, that's great. I love that. Um, I wish there could have been more of the originally planned weirdery for the first film. They cut loads of stuff, like apparently they were going to have trees with eyes and giant ravens and shit like this, which, which were cut out of the, of the, of the film, um, presumably for expense reasons. Um, which would have made it more overtly expressionistic. Actually. Well, they, hey, hey, at least they had Oops. a werewolf in the first film. Who was a werewolf? A hyena. A yeah, it's hyena. a hyena, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, in the in the in the in the remake, there's a very similar sequence, but it's Harker's journey through the portal to fairy is much slower and more gradual. You know, mm-hmm. it's like instead of there just being a bridge, and on one side there's our world, and on the other there's there's the other world. It's like. To get there, you have to trek, you have to hike, you have to go through this landscape that gets increasingly sort of... Well, again, it refers very directly back to Caspar David Friedrich, these 
ostensibly naturalistic realistic landscapes that actually speak directly to internal states of mind you know very much harking back to that um, romantic german expressionism uh, which you know explains the wagner but um <laughs> what he what he's doing is he's, he's trekking up this mountain and then at, at one point there's actually a um a subterranean cavern yeah. And then he emerges, you know, with with everything that subterranean caverns kind of inevitably symbolize, he emerges into Castle Dracula. And we've actually seen Castle Dracula from the outside, and it's a ruin. And he, yeah. ent- he comes out of the subterranean passage into Castle Dracula, and it's not a ruin, it's intact. So yeah. it's like from outside, it's a ruin. And then you pass through this long, long trek up this mountain, eventually through this subterranean cave out on the other side, you come out into it and it's not ruined. It's like, it's literally like he's traveled back in time through, yeah. through traveling up the mountain and then burrowing through this, this passageway and coming out on the other side. And I love that the sinister music is at the start. Um, and then you go to the Wagner, which is this building, growing, climaxing, you know, this sort of like Wagner, so much of Wagner. It's this slow kind of orgasm, you know, um, yeah. And it, it builds and builds and builds to something that actually, when Dracula arrives at the end of that, it's actually an anticlimax. And it's, an inc- it's one of the most brilliantly deployed anticlimaxes in cinema because you have this incredible music that's crescendoing to this, this point. And then he climbs the steps finally and the door opens and there's this silhouette. And then the silhouette steps out into the, into the light and it's this pitiful, pale horrifying frightening but also as we were talking about before weak sort of feeble thing there's a real i think there's a real subversion going on there and that's i'd love that but yeah it like it implies that not only in the visuals but uh right up front where he's at the sort of inn or whatever and there's the gypsies there Hmm. uh real gypsies of course uh because herzog was big on casting real people from the area for basically everything he does so you had real gypsies there that uh, were not professional actors at all, so it actually makes it more authentic in a lot of ways. And then I'll also say, just just a brief note, this movie looks incredibly authentic, like time period-wise. Mm-hmm. Everything looks lived in. Everyone's clothes are a little, you know, tattered and worn, and, uh, you know, like that's my only pair of clothes that I've worn for like the last 20 years, you know, kind of thing. Red Renfield shop is particularly nice with all the old tatty records. All, all, all the paper, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the the gypsies are really good in the in this, and they sort of you know they hint towards the fact that some of the gypsies have crossed over, and they say mm. anyone who goes over there just meets with bad spirits, and, and yeah. it, it, well, it is lost. You know, there's actually a line of dialogue which is that there's they say that there's there's no such castle except in the imagination. Mm-hmm. So, tech, you know, it's as as you know, you said before, it's not even subtext. What he's doing is, is he's literally crossing into a land of imagination, and you can't get back out again without bringing it, you know, with you, clinging to you. Yeah, and and I think also the sequence is kind of it. T- it touches on Herzog bringing in themes that he brings in, in a lot of his films, not only his documentaries, but. Uh, just as, as standard sort of genre stuff as well. Just as these sort of themes of like isolation, grand scale, man versus nature, how small and infinitesimal man is in in the sort of embrace of of the world and the universe at large, like mm. this the indifference. I, yeah. I think he kind of sells Time that. Time is an abyss, says yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it works really well. Does anyone have any sort of like final thoughts they want to 
go into here before I just get into a couple final notes? Or I want to talk about a little bit about the ending, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of, I mean, the, the major difference, I mean, one of the major differences, sorry, is that uh, here you do have the kind of traditional vampirism where you do have Bruno Gans becoming a vampire at the end, and, and he kind of goes off. <laughs> heroic at the end and that's kind of weird <laughs> yeah. I mean there there is this like he's riding a horse into the distance it's like what the fuck am I supposed to think about that the Guno Sanctus as well to to, yeah. to sacred music yeah. right right so so um, I guess I want to ask you guys talk to me about the ending what, what do we think about the ending I think it, it just goes to that sort of futility against nature in this case and most of Herzog's disease spreading Again, futility, like, there's not necessarily this good versus evil conflict in this film so much as we're kind of helpless against sort of primal forces almost in, in a way. I, I, I kind of got that feeling from it to a certain degree where this thing's just going to go on and on and the sacrifices that a good person makes are ultimately in vain, which I think kind of sells the horror of the film a lot better. What do we, what do we think that she's... A feeding the host to the rats, and then binds uh, her husband with the uh, the circle of the host. Mm. It it sounds like you have a have a take on this, Daniel. I, I don't necessarily have a take <laughs> on it. It's, it's 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 more. I think it's. I mean, you know, we talked in the, uh, talking about the twenty two version. It, there's not a a real religious element at all. Whereas here, there's a very specific, okay, there, it, it almost uses the Christian imagery, like, um, and a lot of the, the kind of versions of the Dracula mythos, you know, you're basically seeing the Christian God is the thing that's standing against these, like, undead horrors, right? And here, it, it treats the the sacred host, the thing, the, the, the elements of Christ's body as just another sort of, almost a folk remedy, you know, like, yeah. oh, there's this thing we're using uh, this consecrated thing. It's not so much that, like, there's some supernatural force that's standing against uh, our uh, symbols of disease and evil as much as it's, well, there's there are lots of things that we might do that, that kind of work. I mean, there's no sense of the divine at work. It's just some sort of uh, like, like little magic folk remedies. Lucy throughout the film kind of rejects God like she does throughout the narrative she, yeah. she 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 pushes back against it and I'm almost going towards um it's it's kind of the Stephen King look at this kind of idea uh-huh. uh, like in Salem's Lot where it's not that there's a God it's your willpower and your faith against the evil that matters yeah um so I, I'm I'm thinking it's more that because it's it's much more Lucy just getting really fucking pissed off and not taking shit anymore. <laughs> right. And saying, Fuck you. And and the power comes from her anger and her desire for vengeance against this monster that has taken her life and community away from her. Despite the fact that it's using this very religious image and this very religious item, it seems like the item itself is powerless. That it that it really is because it's being employed in this way by Lucy. Yeah, that's that's doing this more stuff. I think it's. I think it works because the the vampires believe it. That's Mm -hmm. what I. uh, I mean, Lee's absolutely right to say that Lucy rejects God. She says she has an amazing line of dialogue where she says, "Faith is the amazing ability to believe things, even even though we know they're not true." And then at another point, she talks about God's silence, or is it God's distance from us? God's far away from us. God is the most. 
happens. Yeah. Exactly. That's where the existentialism comes from. And uh, she's, she's not rejecting Christianity. So she's not rejecting the existence of God. She's just basically saying it's too remote from us. It's too far away. You know, we, or, or maybe she is rejecting its truth, but she's, I think what she's doing is she's deploying something that works. And I think it works because the vampires take it as working. And I think that's about, I think I think that's about meaning, to be honest. Because to, to me, the vampires are kind of hollowed out of meaning. They they are bound by these folkloric remedies, and you're absolutely right again to say that the Christian the Christian imagery and the Christian artifacts are treated almost like folk remedies. They're bound by them, and one of the things this film insists upon is how how kind of weak and vulnerable and pathetic vampires are, and they're bound by them because they they have meaning. They have meaning to people, and I think that the, the vampires in this are basically the absence of meaning. They're kind of people who've been hollowed out of meaning just i mean nosferatu himself he's kind of had all meaning excised from himself simply because he's lived so long you know he's lost yeah. all social connections he's lost all family connections he's he's completely apolitical he's completely ahistorical he doesn't believe in anything he doesn't know anybody he doesn't think anything he doesn't love anyone his opinions are entirely about how sad he is about everything and how meaningless everything is <laughs> he, he, he dwells in darkness and silence and he says he loves it he's he's basically just this empty shell and the process of harker's vampirization is is kind of his you know that the, the color bleaches out of his skin and he forgets who his wife is and he forgets everybody he knows and everything that means it's kind of him being hollowed out of meaning so i yeah. think that these things work on them because these things are meaningful to people and it's just it's like they're, they're so meaningless that meaning itself it's it's anathema to them i, th- I think that's what's going on there about the end itself, when he rides off kind of heroically, that I love precisely because I don't know what the fuck to make of it. I've never yeah. known what to make of it. Apart from something, I sense something about sort of circularity of history. You know, I, I don't know, but I've never been able to make that out or make real sense of that. And I, that's well, what I love about it. I yeah. kind of I see it as, as uh, I mean, just again, kind of naively, just kind of looking at it, it, it really is like, well, you know... <laughs> Lucy has uh, sacrificed herself to rid the world of this one evil, and that's great as far as it goes. But uh, you know, Van Helsing is uh, about to go to jail for you know. Well, if maybe, anybody maybe. can work out how to how to arrest him, yeah, because the <laughs> right. guy's like, how could I arrest him? There's uh, no I guess, I guess him. that's I guess that's the ineffectiveness of the like social order to confront these evils in a way. Well, that, the social that, order has collapsed. Right. Well, well, the ineffectiveness of anything in civil society, I guess, like in the in the aftermath of this. I don't know. I, I saw it as just... As but it, it's another sign of how this is kind of an ambiguous crisis because it's brought all this chaos and death and misery, but it's also meant the collapse of these repressive social structures. You know, they, they can't right. put Van Helsing in jail because the guy who's, who's left standing simply doesn't know how these things work. <laughs> yeah. It's a complicated and ambiguous ending, and I was uh, kind of left just kind of like... Ah, that's that's certainly a way to end your film, film Werner. I appreciate it. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the that's kind of as far as it went for me. But uh, I was hoping that you guys had a more uh, nuanced view. But I'm kind of guessing. Uh, no, not really. No, that's kind of just how it ends. All right. Great. No, yeah, I was just I was just of the opinion that all her sacrifice was for nothing, and the horror goes on, and that seems like a perfectly Herzogian ending to any sort of film where mankind is just an insect compared to. The overall sort of forces of fate and nature and the world itself and the universe it's just indifferent to to our internal struggles of good versus evil and all that shit and it's like shit happens and you know we're all dead 
I think it's more like, you know, you, you win one battle at a time and there's always another battle to fight. Yeah. You, know, I, you, you I never completely get, win. I always get a sense of hope, even in the in the face of these uh, the void with Herzog. I never get the sense that he's despairing as much as yes, there are reasons to despair, but still there is there is enough goodness that is struggling against this sort of mm. thing. You know, yeah. I always but the goodness has kind of... to struggle. The goodness has to keep right. struggling because it never right. entirely wins. Yeah, there's a humanistic nihilism, you know, yeah. if, I, if I can kind of say that, and uh, that's what I always appreciate about Herzog, and I think it's very much here. And oh god, I just love Lucy. <laughs> She's so yeah. great. <laughs> She's really good. She's really yeah. good. And... When we finish recording, I'm going to go rewatch this film. Uh, I've just yeah, decided nice. this is going to happen. So am I. So am I. That's absolutely yeah. beautiful, pale porcelain skin too. It's like she 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 just uh, sort of emanates this kind of white purity in the film, like just just sort of perfectly. Like she just sort of stands it. She kind of looks like him, doesn't she? Yeah. They're both incredibly thin and incredibly pale and smooth skinned with dark eyes, and yeah. They almost she, negate. They almost negate each other. It's like two, two, uh, like antimatter and matter coming together or something. You know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> There's this wonderful little performance bit that she does. I think it's when she's uh, when when Van Helsing is being really condescending to her, and she does this little spin a couple of times where she turns away and then turns back, and uh, I just like, like she's almost bent over in this. I, mean, I don't know, like. If if uh, Nosferatu is a is a is a rat, she's like a mouse, you know. <laughs> um, I will mention the, the the soundtrack here. Of course, we we, we mentioned Rheingold uh, Prelude from uh, Wagner, um, and then of course you got the Sanctus uh, from Gunnod. But you also get in the sequence we talked about, which I think Jack and I both agree is probably the best sequence in the film. Is uh, you get this traditional Georgian folk song, Sincaro. Yeah. Uh, which is just incredibly haunting and fucking amazing. And then, of course, you just get sprinkled through this film uh, a couple themes written by Florian Fricke, who is uh, the head of uh, Popol Vuh, uh, or was until he, until he passed away, but constant collaborator with Herzog. And the soundtrack is fucking amazing. I own the soundtrack. Uh, it is the, the actual soundtrack album itself is comprised of the original stuff he wrote for this, as well as a couple cuts from... Previous albums uh, from Popovul, really good stuff. Like it's got this this mixture of like uh, traditional gothic kind of stuff that you expect for this film because Herzog was kind of of the mindset that I've got to respect certain sort of genre tropes to a certain degree, but at yeah. the same time, um, you get this this kind of like Middle Eastern kind of flavor to it. Uh, Popovul was very big on doing that sort of thing. Like they were kind of cool world music, you know, not lame-ass world music that you hear these days, <laughs> where they were, you know, they were doing this, and they were, uh, Popol Vuh was taken from uh, South American mythology anyway, and they, they take some music styles from that as well. Uh, but it, it's a very interesting kind of combination of uh, musical styles, I think. Like, it, it kind of sells this idea of, I don't know, this is a personal sort of connection for me, but kind of sells this idea of Dracula's age and where he may have been in his life before he showed up here you know where he's become so stagnant and and just uh repressed and marginalized you know mm. by himself but uh the, the, this has these hints of he might he might have traveled at some point 
and he's he's seen these different eras of of music, like this, especially like Middle Eastern stuff, which influenced like medieval music. A, a lot of that kind of was brought back from the Crusades and, and influenced medieval stuff. So you get little hints of that as well in the actual uh, soundtrack. Uh, I, I thought it was really good. Really interesting. I'd never thought of that before. Yeah. No, no, um, no it's Sin Scaro, of course, brilliant. sampled by Kate Bush. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's the vocal ensemble Gordella that uh, does it in this uh, film. If you if you want to look it up on YouTube, um, but uh, this this was shot in German and English at the same time. It's been fully restored. There was a time when it was ten minutes shorter as far as the English side goes, but now you 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 get it, and basically there's only like ninety second difference. And I actually watched both this week, and as sad as I fucking am, I actually kind of timed it out, so it kind of actually works out to about, to about that. Um, I tried to find the German version, because I've never seen it, and it's supposed, um, Herzog has said it's more authentic, and I wanted to see it, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Well, yeah, because so. you got you got Germans actually speaking German. Of course, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, I mean, the English version actually has the actors, for the most part, speaking English as well, in their own voices, too. Mm. So it's very but I could, I, I was looking forward to finding the German version because I know this so well. I could have watched it without subtitles. Yeah. You know, I don't speak German, but I could have watched it in the German version without subtitles and known what was going on, what they were and saying. The best way for you to do that, thankfully, there's very, very limited DVD options for this one, so you don't have to look too fucking deep. <laughs> Anchor Bay two disc from 2002. You can get the English and German version there. It's one of the def- it's the, the definitive DVD version anyway. And then Shout Factory Blu-ray from 2014 also basically sort of carries over everything from Anchor Bay and with some new stuff as well and uh, widely available. So it's not hard to, it's not hard to find. I may, I may buy the the Blu-ray of the remake. I don't, to be honest, I don't see the point in a Blu-ray of the, of the 1922 one. I mean, how much, how much picture quality can you add to it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the the Blu-ray of the '70s remake. I I, I may well buy that one, <laughs> especially if it's got the German and the English versions in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyone have any final thoughts they want to throw? Out? Did we did we did we talk Nosferatu to death? <laughs> did we well, death. verbal it'll, stake in its heart? Uh, it'll just get up again, you know. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Vampire joke. <laughs> <laughs> Okay then. We, um, what we've done is we've we've thrown a lot of light <laughs> on the Nosferatu topic. Whoa! And, uh, <laughs> we've had it. We, we've sacrificed garlic. our maidenhood to the. Uh, yeah, we 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 sucked all the blood out of it. Yeah. None of us got cross. None of us got cross. Cross, like crosses, crucifixes. Yeah. Yeah. Joke. <laughs> I've had kittens over discussing this film, this pair of films. Yeah. Oh, damn. We got uh, our teeth into it. Yeah. And I so. find myself just giggling in a corner wanting to eat flies. Uh, yeah. How much fun I had to eat. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I rewatched the Todd Browning with Bela Lugosi. Um, today yeah. as well and um that film is fucking hilarious i'm sorry that's just a comedy now as far as i'm concerned <laughs> well yeah it's mostly just like the silly romance and it is yeah yeah <laughs> i mean you, you can't discount lugosi's performance but i mean goddamn the rest of the movie's not that good boris karloff would have been better though wouldn't he let's I be honest so. i think yeah. so and Cor- and karloff would have agreed too fuck look I see that cocksucker (laughs) oh well that was the other way around in Ed Wood wasn't it It was Lugosi going uh, fuck call off that English cocksucker (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, um, Jack, tell people where they can find you on the internet. Well, I write fairly regularly. Uh, it's usually once a week. I post something um, either in word form or in podcast form at Eruditorum Press. So go to eruditorumpress.com. My bit of it is called Shabugan Graffiti, which is spelt S-H-A-B-O-G-A-N graffiti for complex reasons that I won't bore you with. Um, just Google Shabugan Graffiti spelt that way or Eruditorum Press and you'll find me on Twitter. I am at underscore Jack underscore Graham underscore uh, and Shabugan Graffiti has a Facebook page and I have a Facebook which is just search facebook for jack graham you know it's obvious really so um yeah please do that yeah or just follow the links i'll provide in the show notes yeah whatever you want to do you don't have to type it out in the url box it's all right um daniel where can people find you you can find me on a podcast i do called they must be destroyed on site like uh-huh. um but don't don't tell do me that. um does that have a facebook page it does <laughs> oh, does, does it really is there, is that is is that a good way to reach the people in this podcast? It's the single they... best way to reach people in this podcast. Yes, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's good. To I, know. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I will say uh, there's going to be a little few few little changes in the podcast as we go on after this month. Uh, we're going to be moving to a biweekly sort of schedule. Oh we're sort God. of finding we're starting the we're sort of finding that the workload has become a little little too much. So we're going to be sort of going bi-weekly, not necessarily all the time. There might be some bonus content here and there, but we're going to go bi-weekly for the foreseeable future. I'm genuinely upset by this news. I'm, <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> I, think, I, think it's, I think it's a long time coming, though. We, we've been fucking running the, the fires incredibly hot for a long time now, and, you know, it's just real life. You have well, to make some room it, for it. And it gives us time to finally get that homicide life on the street subpodcast. Yes. So, you know, that, that's sort of one of the... It's not that Lee and I are going to not keep talking to one another every week. It's just that maybe we might find other topics to talk about. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of podcasts, Daniel, is this one here that we're on now, is this the only one you do, or do you do any others? Oh, I don't do any other podcasts. I certainly don't have a little podcast network going on called Always Spaceman that has about 40 different threads. Uh, always, uh, you know, sprinting off from one another. Uh, no, I do uh, the Oi Spaceman uh, main thing, which is uh, Doctor Who, and Jack and Lee have both been on that, and uh, we do Search for Fishaw, which is about Red Dwarf, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but you can find it all at oispaceman.com. And I do sometimes write it at rudertonpress.com, although, due to the workload that I have from this <laughs> podcast and all my other podcasts, I don't get a lot of writing done. I can't imagine why that is. <laughs> uh, but yeah if, if you want to find all the rest of our stuff go to tmbdos.podbean.com you can find our YouTube, iTunes Facebook links there uh, if you're going to subscribe to us on iTunes uh, please do and give us a rating apparently that helps oh yeah I forgot to I forgot to fucking mention uh, uh, Mike Murphy from BBNBC gave us a positive review on a uh, five star review on iTunes I actually saw one show up so that was awesome nice Thank you very much, Mike. I very much appreciate yeah, it. That's wonderful. We appreciate that, always. Yeah, I, 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 I tried, I've, I tried, I've never had a five-star review ever, so I'm very jealous. Oh. Well, I, I tried to give him one on his podcast, but apparently iTunes doesn't like Canada. There's some sort of region... <laughs> no, there's, there's, like, there's seriously some sort of region-blocking bullshit going on in iTunes, where if, if you're a Canadian and you make a review on an American podcast, it doesn't show up. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I've given five-star reviews to several podcasts I love, and they never show up. 
So, iTunes is anti-Canadian. It is. It's it here first. It's probably anti-British as well. iTunes is just kind of anti-everyone. The only reason we at all care about iTunes is that it's the only place to get podcasts, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> iTunes um, is anti-all that is good and fine and worthwhile in the world. I mean, I'm just going to say that say Apple is just kind of anti-everything that is good. Yeah. <laughs> Apple is really the sad, pathetic, pale, rat-toothed corpse that rises from its grave yep. and sucks the blood out of everything that's good and pure in this world. Apple, Apple, particularly its domination over the entire audio market is uh, basically a metaphor for the bubonic plague. Uh, it comes yeah. in, it brings rats along with it, and uh, it sinks destroys, its teeth into you. Yeah, destroys the entirety of your society, and sometimes in a positive way. There are some good things that come about that, but for the most part, it's uh, just chaos and destruction. But it's That's, a byproduct. It's not. You can't take any credit for the positive stuff. That's no, 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 no. It, it's yeah. completely. It's completely because it's this uh, this behemoth that's uh, wandering around and just causing destruction. Hmm. Um, and then uh, people binding together against that destruction is the positive thing that happens. So exactly. It's, Apple it's, is just the Apple the, is only good because people rise up against it. That's exactly. the most Apple positive thing. Just the blind necrotic force of history bringing chaos. And it's it's when people find meaning in the chaos that that, uh, that some good is salvaged from the wreckage. And I just really dislike apples to begin with. I like oranges. <laughs> it's just, apples are just really sort of banal and bland. I like cider. Yeah, I don't like apples, but I like cider. But you you introduce alcohol into that, so that's that's what makes that good. Oh, that'll be it. Yeah, uh, I, I think we're done here. <laughs> 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 I think I think we, we 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 probably sadly could go on for another hour just rambling on about bullshit, but yep. uh, I don't want to edit all fucking weekends. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thanks very much for letting me come back. This has been uh, great fun. Thanks it was an absolute pleasure to have you, James, and you're welcome back anytime, of course. And my name's Jack, by the way. Shut up. <laughs> I'm too drunk. I'm reading things on the screen now. I'm trying not to try not to remember things. So there you go. <clears throat> That's fine. Doesn't matter. Like I see Daniel's picture, and I'm probably more likely to say hairy guy of beard instead of Daniel. <laughs> James is Peace better than me anyway, sure. so let's all just pretend I'm James. It'll, it'll improve things. If I was to tell you my name, it would, I'd just say you right now, because that's what pops up whenever I talk on the screen here. Oh, so, yeah, there we go. Okay, we're done. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with something we don't know yet. But goodbye. Bye. Happy Halloween. Yes.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through.